Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. Here's your forecast for Friday, August 4th and Saturday, August 5th. Uh, Friday, there's a cold front coming in, and this may provoke some severe thunderstorms uh, with gusty winds, small hail, and frequent lightning, uh, especially in the afternoon hours. So be careful for flash flooding uh, in the neighboring ravines and notches. And uh, Saturday, in the early morning hours, there may be some rain showers, but there may also be some part uh, clearing. So that'll be nice. Uh, So be careful for that earlier part of the forecast. So Friday, in the clouds, with rain showers, scattered afternoon thunderstorms. Some thunderstorms could become severe and produce heavy rainfall, strong and gusty winds, small hail, and frequent lightning, with a low in the 50s. Winds west at 35 to 50 miles an hour decreasing to 25 to 40 miles per hour. However, higher winds could occur with thunderstorm activity. Oh boy, here we go. Wind chill, 25 to 35 above and then rising. Ooh, it's starting to get a little cool. Friday night, in the clouds with rain showers, chance of thunderstorms early. Early thunderstorms might produce heavy rainfall or strong winds with a low in the mid 40s winds shifting northwest at 25 to 40 miles an hour decreasing to 20 to 35 miles per hour and then for saturday in and out of the clouds trending towards uh, in the clear late under mostly cloudy skies with a high around 50 northwest winds at 20 to 35 miles an hour Increasing to 25 to 40 miles per hour with gusts up to 50 miles per hour. Alrighty, have a good time out there and be careful for those colder temps. It's a little cooler than usual this time of the year. Alrighty, bye.
All right, Stomp, take two. As I was saying, I had an epiphany this weekend yeah. when I was watching you do your um, DJing activity. Okay. What was it? Well, because what I when I think of DJs, like I think of like my middle school dancers where like there would be like this it was usually like we were like in middle school, so it was always like an older kid, like maybe like a twenty something year old kid that would just like play records. Oh, here it so when I think of DJs, ages. I just think of like people just playing records. But you're actually like playing sort of an instrument, like because I'm trying to talk to you, but you're very busy with like all the switches and circular stuff. Yeah, and I realize like you're actually playing like an instrument. You're like an artist. It's not just like loading a record in and letting it do its thing. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I'm glad you noticed. I appreciate that because it is. I mean, when I play, I try to legit like mix one song to the next and match the beats and make it interesting for people. And uh, yeah, it's not uh, just pressing buttons and letting it go on its own. That's for sure. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like it, this is probably about the tenth time I've seen you do. Like a, a gig, and I finally figured it out, so I'm impressed. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'm getting better and better at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. So, very good. Oh, boy. So, Stomp, we had a big weekend. We had Emily's Hike recap here, um, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I think mm -hmm. we should say hello to Luke and, and Jamie right now. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks guys for joining us. We have them live in person at the uh, studio here. So we lock the cats out, so we should be safe for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah. until they start knocking. You're right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is going to be a really great time, and I uh, really appreciate, appreciate you guys coming out. Mm -hmm. They yeah. just uh, did a hike locally that we'll talk about too. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you guys letting us join in on your date night. Yeah, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So we'll uh, we'll introduce Luke and Jamie in a minute here. Um, but before we do the show intro, Stomp, um, do you want to talk about Emily's hike or do you just want to go right into the intro? Well, I mean, we can touch upon it briefly, but I think it was a success in general. Um, everybody was concerned about the weather, obviously, because there was um, you know, a call for rain and... Uh, so different, right? A call for rain. That's unusual, huh? But uh, yeah, so I think it went off without a hitch, pretty much. Uh, most of the teams uh, finished that I'm aware of. I, I hosted Cannon. I took a team of uh, seven up to the summit, and uh, no problems there. On the worst trail in the Whites, Kinsman Ridge Trail. I don't know if you've ever hiked that, uh, Jamie or Luke, but uh, boy, that, that trail is so rough. And uh, yeah, so it was a nice time. I, I hear that the funds um, were met that they were looking for, like well over 80K, approaching $100,000. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. And for the listeners, yeah. if you're not familiar, what we're talking about is um, the Emily Sotelo, um, I forget the actual name of the foundation, but there's a foundation and they partnered with the Hiking Buddies 501c3 organization to do a fundraising hike last weekend. So yeah, they raised just under $100,000, I think. Mm. And those funds are going to go towards education um, for um, awareness around safety and hiking. So um, they're, you know, Emily's family is trying to put 
um, some effort around building out this foundation to try to prevent um, future accidents. But um, yeah. there was, I think, somewhere around 25 to 30 separate hikes that went on over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, hikers raised money. And then there was an after party as well, which is what I was talking about earlier, which Stomp was working on his DJ activity. So mm-hmm. it was good stuff. <laughs> At Bretton Woods. That was the first time nice. I've been to Bretton. What a huge lodge that is. Do you guys ski? Yeah, we do. We do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have you ever, ever done that mountain? I have been to Bretton once. Yeah. yeah. I was impressed. We yeah. actually, we have a, we do a lot with Gunstock because the kids being younger, they have mm-hmm. a good school program. It's a short minute, short Close. drive, 20 minutes away. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Very nice. Yep. So. And uh, I was on Garfield. So I had a, I, lead, I led a hike with, I think, eight other hikers. So I had a great group. I knew um, a couple of them I had met or known before, but mostly new people. And um, I think we got on trail around eight o'clock. Ended up wrapping up right around three o'clock and got right over to Bretton Woods. But it was cool. We saw Littlefoot was out there with Kim and Mark, um, her grandparents. So we saw them coming down. And then uh, the second we got right up onto the summit, it had been cloudy, but it cleared up for us. So we had views out to Franconia Ridge and across um, mm. the Pemi Wilderness. So it was perfect timing. Yeah, same for us. The second we got to the summit, we took a picture of the group with complete whiteout conditions and <laughs> like just behind us to the uh, west it cleared it was so nice so we have these two pictures within five minutes of each other with white and then pure sun super cool it was a nice time so yeah yeah and I think there was around 300 people at the um, after party at Bretton Woods ton of people that had been on the show previously a bunch of friends um, I think Stomp, we'll probably have um, some folks on to do a deeper recap on this, but I think we do want to give a shout out to um, Ben Pease, our friend Lynn, who supports us on the show. Uh, ben and Lynn really worked to pull this all together along with um, Andrew Barlow and, and Julie from the Hiking Buddies. Um, I think there's a bunch of other people behind the scenes, but you know we, we can't say... Uh, thank you to everybody. And then Emily's family, her her parents and, and sister were, were involved as well. So congratulations to all of you. And, um, you know, everybody grieves differently, but I think that, you know, putting effort into trying to build out an educational foundation and, and, and get the word out and around safety is, is a great noble cause. So happy to be involved and hopefully this will be an annual event. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Um, all right. So welcome to episode 116 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. So we are a podcast that discusses all things hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains. This week, we are joined by Chief Warrant Officer 3, Luke Kolodish. So Luke is an instructor pilot and aviation safety officer for the New Hampshire Air National Guard. He's one of the people who is flying on the Black Hawk helicopters when missions are activated that require air support. So we're excited to learn about his career and talk about the operations behind air missions in New Hampshire. Um, in addition to that, his wife Jamie is here so we can get her perspective as well. And she's probably got some good stories, I bet. Yeah. Um, so we're happy to have them both here. Um, so in addition to them, we have a recap of Emily's hike, which we just talked about. We'll probably talk a little bit more about the specific hikes. Um, Stomp has a new piece of gear that he wants to review. We've got a tornado that hit New Hampshire. And then we've got recent hikes on Garfield 
Cannon, Algonquin Ridge, Pleasant Mountain in Maine, and then Jamie and Luke said they did a hike today too, so we'll talk about that, and some recent search and rescue news. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Hey, Mike, I think uh, based upon the smirks over here, you may have uh, committed a uh, pronunciation flub. (laughs) It happens every time. It happens like every day. So how do you pronounce the last name? It's Kaladish. That's right. Kaladish. Yeah, Kaladish. I did Kaladish. Yeah. That's all right. Stop. Yes, sir. You're supposed to. You're supposed to like get this information immediately and tell me. Oh, sorry, bud. <laughs> and is it like when you say? Am I supposed to say Chief Warrant Officer Three? Or does the three matter, or is it just yeah, Chief? Well, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, okay. It does. But you, you did great on the rank. It's just the name could have had some improvement. <laughs> All right. I'll do, I'll do better. I promise. So oh, I was never in the military, so I'm always nervous about like getting the right, like, uh, you know, level and all that stuff, but you can go with Luke it. from here on out. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to attempt that last name anymore. So, um, but Stomp, we got a tornado that happened in um, southern New Hampshire. So I didn't really yeah. pay attention to this, but what, what's going on here? Wow, Did yeah, it was the last, uh, yeah, it was, it was the lead up to the Emily hike too. So just the crazy weather. Um, it was an EF1 that landed uh, in southwestern New Hampshire. Basically, it, le- it was an EF1, um, 95 mile an hour winds, and it left a 13 mile long path uh, from Keene. Uh, you guys down around there, Keene area, somewhat. It's a, it's a bit of a haul, but bit of a yeah, roughly. Okay, yeah. so from Keene all the way over to Dublin, and it uh, it was two hundred yards wide, and it leveled, I guess, hundreds of trees and damaged roofs and everything else. So that's pretty pretty notable story there. Yeah, I know this has been a couple of warnings recently, but hopefully we're past. It's cooled off a bit, so hopefully we're mm-hmm. past this this uh, little window of unstable weather, and we can avoid tornadoes. Yeah, for sure. Nobody got injured, thankfully. Okay. Yeah. All right, Stomp. I'm going to put something up on my screen here, and I want you guys to take a look at this because this is a beer. This is a beer story, not a beer like I'm drinking, but the beer that can eat you. <laughs> um, so this has been going around a little bit. Can you guys see that? Okay. Uh, yeah. For the most part, little, me, uh, you mean the man dressed up like a bear? Yes, exactly. So I'm making a oh, little bigger. So okay. everybody is like a buzz right now because I think this is in like China or something like <laughs> this. There's these type of beers in oh, Asia called sun beers, and apparently they they're in the zoo and they can stand up just like humans. So people are now convinced that. These beers are actually hmm. humans wearing um, like furry suits or something like that, so that they um, appear to be beers, but they're not. But I, oh. I think they're real. I've watched a bunch of videos, and it just seems like that's the way that they they present. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I had not heard about that. Yeah. So I think it would be interesting to like see if those beers could survive here in the White Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> This goes along with that uh, video that I posted about the puppy with the three legs and it's walking on its two hind legs. Have you seen? Have you seen this? No. It's absolutely amazing. It's on my Instagram. There, I'll uh, send the link again. But there's a dog that has is missing his front left paw or arm, and uh, has learned how to walk on its two hind legs, one hundred percent of the time. Wow. It's uh, it's amazing. It's really neat. But lately, we've been talking about animals uh adapting and modifying their behaviors and you know like the orcas you know attacking boats and things like that it's just 
Something might be going on mm-hmm. here. Yeah. <laughs> the tide's turning. <laughs> the aliens are starting to. Uh, oh, remind, that's right. I got to ask Luke about aliens, but um, <laughs> but we'll get to that later. But Definitely. yeah, the aliens are starting to activate the animals to that's take really over for us. Um, huh. All right, Stomp. I have an update on a story that we did. There was there was um, some bodies found in a remote campsite in Colorado. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and they had been there for probably over a year. They said that they were partially mummified. Uh, news came out last week that they identified the um, the deceased uh, people that they found. So it was two sisters in their early forties. And um, one of the sisters had a son, 14-year-old son. So apparently they were living off-grid and uh, they they don't know the exact cause of death at this point. Um, they said that there were signs of malnourishment and that uh, there was two people found in a tent and one outside. Uh, they theorized it could have been starvation, freezing temperatures, potentially carbon monoxide poisoning to try to make a fire to stay warm inside. But uh, we'll keep an eye on that story. But, you know, the mystery is slowly unraveling on that one. But it's very strange that they would try to survive in, in such rough conditions like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll keep us posted. I mean, the, the tent makes sense, you know, poison. Yeah. 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 And I do hear stories sometimes of people like, you know, there was that story in Maine about the guy that would like survive for 20 years as a hermit. But mm-hmm. I do hear stories occasionally about people that are sort of hermits in the White Mountains. We haven't heard much lately, but it does make me think like it wouldn't be un- out of the question for someone to try to survive through the winter in the white somewhere. Yeah. Don't doubt it at all. I mean, I've, I've mentioned the places that I've stumbled across bushwhacking. I mean, they're, they're out there all over the place. Yeah. yeah. People hide now. Um, Next up, Lynn had sent us over a link that I'll include in the show notes, Stomp. And this is a, it's a color-coded calendar that you can download that gives you the best um, times to visit U.S. national parks. And it basically breaks it down by the best time in each season to visit. So this is helpful because it can kind of give you the um, the times to visit like in the winter like the Everglades, Everglades National Park Gateway Arch mm-hmm. um, Grand Canyon those are like earlier in the season Hawaii um, St. Thomas and then you've got a lot that sort of fall in the middle of the summer you've got uh, Acadia actually is different because it's got like early summer and then um, into the fall months but a lot of these are sort of Glacier National Park is in the middle of the summer and Joshua trees in the, in the spring and winter season. But I'll include this in the show notes. So if anybody's planning trips in the U S national parks, this is actually a pretty good guide. And I'm happy to see, cause I'm going out to Yosemite. September is considered one of the best months to visit there. So what does it say for the whites? Um, it doesn't have the whites because the whites are a U.S. national forest and not a park. Mm, gotcha. So it doesn't have that on there, but it has um, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Zion, uh, Acadia, Arches, Bryce Canyon. So it has it pretty mm-hmm. much everything. So it's a good reference guide that I'll, I'll include in the show notes. That's awesome. Um, next up, this is a trigger warning uh, for sexual assault. So just be weary if you don't want to hear this one. It's a little creepy, especially if you're a solo hiker. But uh, there's been an incident, uh, ongoing incidents in Colorado Stomp. Sheriff's Office warns of a predator targeting female hikers in 
in the conifer in evergreen area. So um, seven reports have been taken so far going back to April 3rd. Investigators are um, indicating that a male suspect is um, basically hiking nude and assaulting hikers in the area. Um, So again, they've had like seven incidents with this guy. It sounds like he, um, not only is he exposing himself, but he's also doing, uh, he's approaching women hikers. So a little scary. Luckily, we haven't had anything out here in the whites, but it's just a good reminder to just say that like, you know, things can happen sometimes. So be careful out there. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Crazy. And if you're a solo male hiker, like do whatever you can to sort of set people at ease. Don't be creepy. <laughs> it's going to be hard for you, Mike. I, I, I'm always like, hi, how you doing? Like, <laughs> nice day. I try to be as like friendly as possible. I have a podcast. Yeah, I have a podcast. So, that's, yeah. that's his famous line. No, it isn't. <laughs> Edit that out. Edit that out. Um, and then uh, next here, Stomp. So you pulled this one. Fires are threatening uh, Joshua trees. So there's wildfires yeah. going on in Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, massive wildfire in the Mojave Desert. Um, that's something we got to talk to Luke about too. Is spotting for uh, wildfires. We didn't talk about that. That's true. We didn't put that in yeah. the script. So, but yeah, it sounds yeah. like this fire is encroaching on the groves of the iconic Joshua trees. So, experts are worried that the fire could decimate the trees, which normally survive over 150 years in the desert. So, we'll keep an eye on this one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's a beautiful place. I've seen that in person. Have you guys made it out to uh, Joshua Tree? Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, I went out so there. Pretty. Uh, bouldering. There's a lot of good bouldering out there. Yeah, it is neat. Yeah, for sure. It's beautiful. Love the desert. I do too. It's so great. Yeah, I've been there. I've been out to Sedona in that area, but I'd love to get out to check out Joshua Tree someday. But mm. it's on the long list. I was very surprised by Utah. I went out there to visit. My sister lives in Las Vegas, and we took a family vacation and headed up to Utah. Mm-hmm. I was very, very impressed with it. Yeah. I've seen Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that part. Not that <laughs> It's, eh, yeah, yeah. No, I, the I mountainous terrain, the elk, uh, mule deer, mm-hmm. uh, trout uh, fishery, uh, just beautiful, very remote area. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't gotten much into Utah. We, we went in a little bit when we were over in... Um, like Glen Canyon Dam, we drove up into Utah, maybe like an hour or so into the desert area. But yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, it looks very similar to um, Arizona, Sedona area. You know, it's a little bit more rugged out there, but uh, it's it's beautiful. Someday, so many places to go, can't keep track. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for Slasher's Ear Review? Stomp. So a uh, little bit of gear talk here. So you wanted to do a summary on the Motorola Defy? No, just an update, really. Um, just an update, okay. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I, I have a unit in my possession now. It was um, sent over to me by uh, a friend that's nearby. And I plan to fire this up. Um, it looks really cool. If listeners remember, I talked about this Motorola device, which acts as a hotspot for your cell phone. So basically, if you're hiking in 
um, uh, an area that's pretty remote or just has really poor communication, you can use your phone uh, to communicate out via satellite. And um, it's really neat, Mike. Can you see this, Mike? It's about the size yeah. of a old school beeper. It's maybe two inches by three inches. Weighs maybe an ounce, if that. It's super light. I'm ready to fire it up. But um, I wanted to point listeners to a video about it by um, a YouTube channel called Hiking Guy. So he does a, a good 20-minute long review of the device. Um, again, I think the neatest thing about this is the subscription cost is like five bucks a month versus some of the more expensive plans. So um, if anybody has one or gets one, let me know uh, what they think. And uh, we're looking for some feedback and uh, uh, possibly even for use in the search and rescue world too. We'll see. But uh, it's uh, definitely promising. All right. So you're going to be testing this out yourself as well, right? Yes. Yep. I just got it yesterday. So I'm going to fire it up soon. Yeah, I was hiking with my group. This um, One of the hikers, Molly, had a similar device. It's from a different um, carrier. My friend Tom actually had the same model that she had. It's like green and gray. And the idea is basically like you're out of cell connection. You can connect with the satellite with that little device and then send your text to your phone. And right. it'll it'll hop over to your whoever you need to send it to. So Yeah, I'm not entirely clear. I think you have to have an app that you have to download. And I'm not sure if you can contact somebody that doesn't have the app or not. So that's a point that I need to clarify. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that the, the device that Molly had, it simply works over text message. So you okay. connect to the device through your phone and then it'll send a text message to whoever you want to send it to. And it comes into their phone via the text message app. Okay. Which I get, that's my guess is how that works too, but I'll check it out. All righty. Um, and then just staying on Gear Talk Stomp, I wanted to give you a heads up that you had shamed me out of using hiking poles probably about six months ago, and um, <laughs> it's probably one of the reasons why I got injured. Oh, so sure. I've re- yeah, I've returned <laughs> to using hiking poles now, especially going uphill. Really? And I've noticed like significant difference in my speed. I was absolutely cranking uphill. Huh. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, if you're looking for speed. Yeah. So what's the but benefit you- to not using the poles? Well, from a PT perspective, we, we go into this in one of the episodes. From a PT perspective, you're utilizing your, your natural balance systems okay. more. Now, think of it as like an elderly person relies upon a walker. It's a crutch. And the more you use things like that, you're not letting your body do its natural job. So there's a balance argument for sure. Uh, but yeah. I, I see what you're saying about the, the pace. Pace may be certainly better with the, the help of your arms pushing along too. Yeah, and you know, honestly, like, and I joke about it, but like I did get, I had that toe injury and I was out for a couple of weeks and a part of it was just sort of slipping. I feel like if I had my poles with me, I probably would, that incident wouldn't have happened. Um, So (laughs) that's my theory. your fault. It's the hypothesis, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's basically Stomp's fault that I got injured and I missed the Mount Washington race. But um, (laughs) but I I started using my poles now and I'm I'm team pole at this point. Team pole. Team yeah. pole. The, the other thing is we can't use them for search and rescue. So if we're carrying somebody and your pole's sticking out of your pack, you'll gouge that, somebody's eye out. Not good. Yeah. I did have this idea. So <laughs> if anybody's listening, like, don't take this idea because I got to talk to Bryce from Valcluse. But the other thing about hiking poles is I feel like, so we have this, you know, Valcluse gear, which is like this basically like this 3D printed thing. I feel like 
you could make like a 3D printer device that would take your two hiking poles and allow you to convert it into a crutch. So if you had like a little 3D printed device that could connect your two poles, make it into a crutch, like you may, you may be able to get out of a situation instead of getting a 911 call to get carried out, like you might be able to crutch your way out. Hmm. So that's another reason why I'm going to invent this and I'm going to go on Shark Tank and make a million dollars. So you think you're saying that a connector would just make the two more supportive of heavier weight? I think you could take you could take like a plastic overlay, put it on top, connect the two hiking poles, and then get a center section, connect the two hiking poles so it's stable, and then right. basically use that as a crutch. Hmm. You shouldn't give, give anybody this idea. <laughs> could make yeah. you famous. I like mean, definitely don't talk about it on a podcast. We're trademarking this. <laughs> uh, this is trademark now. Don't don't steal it. So, um, anyway, but I I like the hiking poles now, so I'm team hiking pole. And then the other thing stop that I'm dealing with is the big decision point for me is whether to take a tent or a hammock for my backpacking trip to Yosemite. So I'm testing out both systems, and right now I'm leaning towards a hammock. Mm-hmm. I have no comment. I mean, I'm not too familiar with the terrain out there. Do you guys know? Any no. comments on I that? I love hammocks, though. Yeah. <laughs> How many nights are you spending in this hammock? Uh, I think we're going to be out there for th- four nights. Have you slept in it yet? I have, yeah. yeah. I've, d- I've done it. Um, I've done like three or four nights in the hammock, and then... I've done tents for a bunch of times, so um, I think what I'm, I am going to do, though, Luke, is probably go out and do a couple more nights and just test it out a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, I just like the hammock. I feel like I'm more comfortable there. Yeah, it's pretty popular. I yeah. I was out last weekend with a friend of mine uh, doing some fishing on the Three Ponds Trail, which is sheltered mm-hmm. there, and it's he's beautiful. a big hammock. I had, I had my sleeping bed, and he had his hammock, and he, he loves the hammock. Just don't strain yeah. up too low. His rubbed yeah. against a rock one time and it split during the middle of the night and he went right through the middle of it. <laughs> oh, that's <my> not good. <laughs> yeah. I got to make sure my hammock's new though. I don't want it. I don't want to rip in. So, um, huh. we'll see. I'll keep people updated on what I decide to do. The funny thing is the hammock's heavier than the tent, which you wouldn't think would be the case, but it is. How about so. temperature, like warmth? Are you concerned about nighttime temps? No, I have an underquilt and, okay. you know, in a, ba- a sleeping bag that they'll keep me warm. So I'm not too worried about that. Gotcha. So, hmm. um, and then the last bit of gear thing I wanted to talk about here is every once in a while, people ask us like, what do they recommend? What do you recommend for a backpack, day, day pack, whatever. I just have to keep giving a shout out to the ultimate direction fast pack that I picked up like two years ago. I've been using that thing. It's holding up pretty well. So if you're thinking about a backpack, I think I would highly recommend the ultimate direction for a day pack because it's got plenty of room for you to put all kinds of stuff in there and it's served me pretty well. Hmm. That's the first time I've heard of that name. What was Are the they, name? Yeah. It's U- Ultimate UD? Direction. Ultimate Direction. Hmm. Yeah. And the reason I like it is because it's it's basically like a running, it's like one of those running backpacks that you would see from like Solomon or whatever. It's got the um, the shoulder straps where you can put your water bottles in, but it's actually bigger. It's 25 liters, so it's about the size of what you would find for a normal day pack. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a lot of flexibility to bring extra gear. Like sometimes if you're hiking with someone that doesn't want to carry all their gear, then it gives you a lot of flexibility. Gotcha. I'll look into it for sure. I'm still happy with my ultralight. I converted a uh, one of those ultralight packs with the camelback. It was basically a camelback. Stripped it of everything and uh, made some extra space, and I love it. 
It's great. Excellent. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stump. So, uh, pop culture talk. Let's just do the the Netflix movie because I feel like sure. Jamie, this is your moment here. So, do you like Hallmark movies? <laughs> I do not watch TV. Yo, you don't watch any? T- All right. Well, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sell you All on right. <laughs> a, a, a movie. So, there's a movie on Netflix that uh, Stomp will give you his password if you need a password. Um, <laughs> It's called Happiness for Beginners. So it's all about this. I, I think it's a Hallmark movie. So it's basically like this lady that's like married, but the marriage goes south. She's trying to find herself and like her brother's friend. I'm giving away the whole plot, but no, I'm sorry. It's just, it's <laughs> spoilers. Good, but, but the brother's friend like is in love with her, but like it hasn't said anything. And for whatever reason, she decides she's going to go on this like backpacking trip. So she's going to go find herself, right? She's going on the Appalachian Trail. So she's going to find herself in like New York and Connecticut. Like who does the New York and Connecticut section of the Appalachian Trail find themselves? But so true. Then the, the boy, the, the brother's friend who they've known forever, he happens to be on the trip too. And then, you know, calamity ensues and then they fall in love. So well, there you go. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't have so, to watch it now. Well, I guess you don't have to watch it. <laughs> but stop. You were the one that recommended this to me. My sister-in-law messaged me. She was so excited. And then she was like, it was horrible. So, oh boy. That's funny. Yeah. I, the, the reason it caught my eye. I mean, the title was obvious. Like, oh, I should look into that. But the, the male lead looks like Emil Hirsch from Into the Wild. It looks like a l- literal doppelganger of that actor from uh, that fantastic movie about that man that, that goes off grid. Have you seen that I one? did see that movie and that yeah, was wonderful. Beautiful yeah, movie. Yeah, it was beautifully done. The soundtrack's great too. Yeah, absolutely. But this actor looks just like him. But yeah, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll take one for the team. It's 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you can't always go by Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> true, true. So I don't know what the audience rating is, but like the, the review rating is not great. Um, and the sad thing is like the, the lead actress is the, um, the Kimmy Schmidt. Um, she's in The Office, the redheaded actress. So she's an excellent actress, but there was no chemistry between the two leads either. So. Wow, that sounds like a great one. Huh? <laughs> yeah, so I call that a soft it. sell. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but the scenery was beautiful. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we have a um, a sponsor here for the night, and uh, this is Valkluis Gear. Do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Valkluis' ultralight ventilation backpack frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, sized uh, 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. So visit valklusgear.com to order 
and ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER to enjoy a $5 discount. And plus, let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. Um, so there we go. Um, you can still get stickers at uh, Ski Fanatics uh, right at the exit of 28 or at the Spinner's Pizza Parlor in North Andover. Oh, no, sorry, Andover off of Dascom Road, Route 93. Um, if anybody's interested um, in advertising with Slasher, just send us a email at slasherpodcast at gmail.com and we can let you know how to do that. And uh, just a quick little shout out for EMS, your Northeast go-to for outdoor gear, guidance, education, and more since 1967. Check them out at ems.com. And finally, a little plug for Reckless, one of our favorite breweries in the area. A special thanks to At Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4K footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. Yeah, Stomp, I did an experiment with my Valcluse. Um this weekend. I, I wore the, the T-shirt that Virgin Gear had given everybody for uh, Emily's hike, and it's like half cotton. Yeah, so I, I noticed like, that. I'm going to... I'm going to test to see how well the Valcluse is on my back. So this, so Luke and Jamie, this is like a, um, it's like a 3D printed like grid that attaches to your backpack and it gives separation between your back and the backpack. So this airflow can go in between it and actually works really well. So I hiked up Garfield, which is like a five mile hike uphill in a cotton shirt. And then I took my backpack off and I was asking people like, you know, is there any sweat? And I could feel, and it, I was actually pretty dry. So it does work really well. So I highly recommend it. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it's clever. So, it's super clever. Yeah, good birthday present or Christmas present for your hiker friends. Yeah, definitely. And uh, thank you for the donations this week. We have um, Cindy Hessian donated five coffees, and um, she's proud. She just caught up with all the episodes uh, <laughs> that we've ever done. <laughs> Talk about binging. Wow. Yeah. Um, so this is 116. So congrats, Cindy. And thank you again for that. And then Jeff donated five and uh, is asking when the bushwhack is. And uh, it's it's happening real soon. I was considering this weekend, but the weather is a little crazy. So just stay tuned on the, um, the Instagram uh, story and you'll get more information as we get closer to that. Excellent. So, beer talk, recent hike, Stomp, you drinking anything? No, not tonight, my friend. I'm trying to play catch up on my hydration. What you got going on? I have the last beer in my refrigerator. So, <laughs> from when I, I was uh, off drinking for the last three months. So, it's just a, it's an Angelica from Lord Hobo Brewery. Oh, the Hobo. That's not bad. It's okay. That's not bad stuff. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Um, so, not drinking anything, though. Not tonight, to no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And these two are sucking down some of our beautiful water from Welch Dickey. Excellent. It is good, though, it's, isn't it? It's delicious. This water is amazing. Yeah. It's like, whew. Did you guys ever get any beer from Henniker Brewing Company up this way? Hmm. Not me. I only bring it up. They do a dust-off beer. Dust-off being the call sign for Army Medivac. Ah. So they did a kind of like a tribute beer that they come out with. It's pretty good. Oh, that's neat. We'll keep a lookout for sure. We have a couple of nice places around right here that have great selection, so I'm sure. Should have brought a gift pack. Oh, next time. Next time you're <laughs> yeah, in. There you go. <laughs> we'll get we'll get you a gift pack. That sounds good though. Um so stomp recent hikes. Um so you already talked about you did Canon, so mm-hmm. how was that? 
was great. Yeah, piece of cake. I mean, again, it's just uh, Kinsman Ridge Trail is just the gem of the whites, quote unquote. It's a joke. It's getting terrible. And all I could think about going up KRT was this is prime location for a landslide <laughs> with all the rain and everything else. Like, get me off this trail. There's no easy way up Cannon. And that trail, I don't know. I don't know how they could redirect it, but it's in rough shape. Let's just put it that way. Are you talking about the side closest to the parking lot, like that goes along the ski trails? Correct. Yeah. So yeah, can it's all rugged yeah, out. Yeah, it's really rough. Yeah. Um, and you know, beyond that, we did uh, a family hike up Drake's Brook to Jennings, and uh, then down Noon Peak, which is a nice little loop down here on Route 49 as you head towards Waterville. So that was a nice day. Beautiful weather. Yeah. And I'm still recovering from this. Uh, sprain or strain in my calf i have not been able to run for the last two weeks which is a bummer well you'll have to rest up storm yeah you should start using hiking poles it'll solve all your issues. <laughs> <laughs> we'd bring it back that was good right <laughs> damn that was tough i'll consider it Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? All right, so I did a couple of hikes. So I was out on Garfield Stomp. A little quick history lesson on Garfield. I didn't know nice. this. Garfield used to be called the Haystack. That was the original name up until the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1881, uh, President Garfield was assassinated so um, in recognition of, and mourning of the assassination, the selectmen of Franconia voted to change the name of the haystack to Mount Garfield in 1881, and then it was officially changed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of haystacks, like there's a little haystack on Franconia Ridge, and then there was the haystack, which is now Garfield. So yeah. it's interesting how those names just kind of pop up everywhere. Did you uh, come across any info on that um, that stone structure up top? I haven't. I wonder I what that's all about. I, I've always been curious about that. I mean, you could assume it was maybe a fire tower or something or a shelter. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I don't look. know. Um, and then the other uh, place I went, so the next day I took my nephew JT and his girlfriend Lily up Pleasant Mountain in Denmark, Maine. So right, right, right down the street from my father-in-law's place. And I'll tell people that right now is prime time blueberry picking season. There was it probably is. like yeah. 50 yeah, people sure. up there um, picking blueberries. But Pleasant Mountain is a fantastic hike if you're looking for something moderate. Uh, great place to take the kids. Tons of blueberry picking. It's got a great fire tower up there. Um, I actually had to peer pressure my neck. So... I, Lily, who was the girlfriend, she was like, oh, can I climb that? And I was like, yeah, you can climb it. So she immediately got up and climbed it. Then I climbed it. But my nephew, JT, I could tell that he didn't really want to climb it, but he felt peer pressured because his girlfriend did it. So he climbed up there. But you can't get inside the fire tower. You can only climb up. But it's probably like 30 feet tall. So it's one of the taller ones in the area. I saw the pictures. I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yeah. A little yeah, risky. It's, yeah, it's got awesome views. And then Pleasant Mountain has an interesting <laughs> story about its name to Stomp is previously it was known as Shawnee Peak. Okay. 
and the reason it was it was named Shawnee Peak in 1988 because a company from Pennsylvania from the Poconos actually purchased it as a ski resort and they renamed it Shawnee Peak because they had another Shawnee Peak that was in the Poconos, I guess. So because they owned it privately, they were able to name the um, the ski resort Shawnee Peak, but there's a separate section of a couple more additional summits, so the locals continue to call it Pleasant Mountain. Mm-hmm. The mountains have since been sold to the same organization that runs Sunday River, so they've now removed the name Shawnee Peak, and it's now back to officially Pleasant Mountain, which I, I like it a little bit better because there's no... There's no connection to the Shawnee tribe in the in the local region here. Mm. I think they were a tribe that was out west. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, if that was a uh, tribal name. Yeah, I think originally they were like in the sort of Delaware area, but eventually they're, they settled in Oklahoma. So they got pu- they did get pushed out during the settle- settlement, but eventually they were in Oklahoma. So, hmm. um, But I thought that was interesting. I'm always curious about name changes. Yeah. Chock full of history tonight, Mike. Sorry, I, I just was looking stuff up. Sorry. <laughs> no need to apologize. <laughs> All right. And then Luke and Jamie, where did you guys hike today? <laughs> did the uh, Welch Dicky Loop Woo! just down the road? Whoop, whoop. Yep. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we've done it before, but uh, we figured it was uh, probably a reasonable one to get knocked out between work and getting up here and then coming in for the podcast. That's yeah, perfect. And when time. did you start? Uh, we did. Yeah, a little bit after two. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that works. Well, was yeah. it, how were the trails? Were they wet? Uh, no. Fairly uh, dry? There was a little bit of sprinkle when we left at the end, but no, everything was pretty dry. Uh, saw a few people, about six or seven people on the trail. That's wow. great. Um, That's always a varied group. Mm. You got uh, runners coming up and down. Oh, sure. Them, and then the uh, people in sundresses and... You know the whole gambit, yeah. But everybody, had, everybody seemed to have a pretty good day. So we were one of the last cars to leave the parking lot uh, mm-hmm. when we got back down. Mushrooms too. Lots of mushrooms out right now on the trails. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, we uh, last weekend up at the Three Ponds, we did uh, a buddy of mine took a bunch of golden chanterelles mm-hmm. off there, and we saw some oyster mushrooms out there today on the trees. I guess that's one plus plus side to all the rain that we've been having. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Massive mushrooms. Are you familiar? Are you versed in which you can eat? And not? So, <laughs> becoming versed, I, I'm interested in it. Yeah. And there's always that gamble, right? Oh, sure. A little bit of gamble on how, just how confident are you? And I love that the apps, they don't guarantee anything. Yeah. And they, the, and just as you think you're pretty confident, that's definitely an edible mushroom. Then they then remind you, plant the seed of doubt. Here's all the ones it looks like that it could be. <laughs> and, and then you uh, just feed it to me first. Yeah, well, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, See what the happens. first time we did that, there was a, uh, like a porcini type mushroom we actually found on our own property. And yeah, she, uh, I cut a little bite. I was very, very conservative about the whole deal. Took a little sample off. Oh, sure. I had read up, you know, you you try a little bit first, see how you feel. If everything's good, you can probably proceed. So I had one like steak, like slice off the mushroom and I cut a little piece off and I'm explaining to her, well, let's just try a little bit now. We'll wait and see how she just grabbed the whole other half and down the hatch. She said, I guess we'll find out pretty quick. Yikes. It was good. It was actually edible. So it worked out well. Huh. I'm sure they taste better than store-bought. Oh yeah. They are. It is. Yeah. yeah, It's, it's pretty neat. That's so great. So wait a minute, just tell me about this app. So is it one of those identifying apps you can yeah. take a picture? Yep. Yeah, they okay. ask you to take like a side profile top and a picture from underneath. Yeah. And then it kind of runs, you know, uh, you got to have service. So there's that's a bit of a downside. Oh, so, okay. but you can you can take photos and store them or take photos and then later on when you have service, upload. Yeah. Um, you know, then, you know, get on there and check it out. But um, gotcha. 
it works pretty. I think there's a couple different ones out there. Mm-hmm. I, I got the free one. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it works pretty well. It reminds me, I just recently talked about this Merlin app, uh, which identifies birds and you mm. do not, you have it as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we tried it on this loop that we did this weekend up to Jennings and it worked like a charm, uh, identifies it really well. No service. You don't need service. Um, and then you can call them in and, and sure enough, they always fly in. It's really an amazing app. I thought what the neatest things was that if it has multiple birds, it'll show you the different birds and then they re-highlight the bird that's chirping At while you're actually actively listening to it so you can kind oh, of yeah. get better identify. Yeah, it really is pretty impressive. Super cool app. Awesome. Luke, is there any sort of general rule of thumb around like the colors and mushrooms? Like, you know, if it's red, stay away from it or do, is there nothing you can go by in general? So... I wouldn't say bright colors are anything that would warn you off just in the sense of uh, like golden gentrails, right? Bright orange, yellow color. Just look a lot like the jack-o'-lanterns, which are not edible. Um, big dead giveaway of the jack-o'-lanterns is that they are bioluminescent. So if you put them in a dark space and flip them over, you can see some glowing. So that will okay. tell you that don't eat them. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I guess, so, you know, again, I'm pretty novice at this. So disclaimer, I wouldn't go off anything that I say on the podcast. <laughs> but... Um, so far every, every, you know, you see a lot of those red mushrooms that almost dots on them kind of look like super Mario brother mushrooms. And every time I've looked up any of those, they've all been toxic. The Amanita so. muscaria. Yeah. That's, that's if you want to, you want to go for a journey, you want to eat one of those. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's a journey mushroom. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Interesting. Or as we say, inedible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. But um, yeah, but it is, uh, there are some easy, easy to, uh, mushrooms, uh, hen of the woods and chicken of the woods are two. They really can't be confused with anything else. And they are probably two of the tastier mushrooms out there. Hmm. Well, well I'll try to find some pictures of those and throw them up in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Imagine I picked the wrong one. Whoops. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <again>. <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> All right. Well, we have one more before your segment here, guys. So, uh, this is a sponsor, Seek the Peak. So Seek the Peak returns this summer with the classic Mount Washington Hikeathon. This annual gathering of the New Hampshire's hiking community is the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory's largest annual fundraiser. Hikers raise funds, earn gear, and celebrate at our Apre Hike Party with live music, food trucks, epic gear raffle, bear garden vendors, and people who care deeply about the trails and an inclusive hiking community. It all takes place at the base of the Mount Washington Auto Road. Our hike and make friends option supports all ability levels, pairing hikers with similar goals for a trek that's right for you. All hikers are welcome to help raise funds for the observatory's summit weather station and services like the twice a day higher summits forecast, educational programs, and research in the White Mountains. Seek the Peak is sponsored by Great Glen Trails and Eastern Mountain Sports. So to learn more and register for next year, uh, check out seekthepeak.org. Very good song. Do you want to do notable listeners? Or you want to wait till next week? Um, if you guys don't mind, can we zip through them? Sure. You guys, uh, the babysitter's still good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're just going to bill you guys by the hour. That's right. You guys, you guys are picking up the tab when we go over it, right? <laughs> That's fair. They both, they both give me the thumbs up. Check. Stomp will, stomp will take care Copy of Copy that. We're good. Let's fly. All right. All right. We have Brady Girl 1, Icelandic Highlands. That's pretty cool. Liz Fay was camping at White Ledge Campground, exploring Redstone Quarry, Mount Chikor via the Piper, Liberty Hammond, and Weedemu Loop. 
Bella Pelzar Adventures uh, tackled Mount Webster. Dr. Nancy Q did Bond Cliff, Bond, West Bond, and the Twin Traverse. Uh, Shandy Does It All tackled Glen Ellis Falls, Wiley Pond, and then uh, another trip tackled the moats as well. Kinesthetically, a werewolf tagged us for Parker and uh, then tackled Cannon as well for 13 out of 48, which is pretty neat. Just Benz, 22 out of 48. Tom Field, Avalon, Dad Adventure. A-bomb underscore Graham um, tackled 10 out of 12 uh, for the 52 of the view. And that was Crawford Re- Resolution and Parker. And um, actually suffered an ankle injury, which is sort of a bummer. So he had a hobble out five to six miles from the trailhead. Pretty neat story, though. So self-extraction, I mean, we sometimes we talk about that, just being ready for the worst. And um, if you can self-extract, do so. Um, obviously, there's limits to that, but I'm um, glad you made it out there. Uh, Reese Adventures was on a three-day backpack, including Emily's hike to Mount Hale. That's a hell of a weekend. Uh, Dave Shits in the Woods did Mount Pogist, Mount Mexico, and Big Rock Cave. I'm familiar with Pogist, but I'm not familiar with those other two. Have you done those? That's just the, yeah, it's just the approach from, um, I forget the road, but it's just the approach to Pogist. It's basically okay. like a loop trail where you'll uh you go up there that's the way to go honestly like it's um uh, the there's a cave system and then you go up through mount mexico so it's a it's a nice hike that's yeah the pictures are beautiful oh yeah um then two more here so wild and outdoors did a 15 mile traverse loop including the bald faces eastman meter and eagle crag that sounds like a hell of a trip and finally uh a Folsom tagged us today uh, and just went up Mount Eisenhower via the Edmonds Path. Pretty cool. Any notables? There. Any winners, Mike? I like the Iceland <laughs> yeah. in the beginning. That's my favorite. Yeah, Mike, you talked about Iceland a long time ago. You should revisit that sometime or another. That's a good story. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. fun place to go. So, I'll, uh, matter of fact, I, I'll um, post my, I put a video together um, of the hikes I did when I was out there. So, it's uh, it's a great place. So I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. Cool, awesome. Yep. So, Luke and Jamie, this is your big moment. Are you ready? Ready. Ready. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, Stomp, why don't you sort of give the background on how we got connected, and then I can I can start peppering them with questions. It sounds great. So, um, this it was a connection from our dear friend, um, Ty Gagney. And um, Ty, as he was researching some of his books, uh, obviously got to know many of the crew, uh, I'm assuming from Air National Guard here in New Hampshire. Ooh, and time out. What? That's a big, big, oh, 
So that happens so often. New Hampshire? No, you you uh, you uh, miscredit the uh, the Air Guard is the Air Force, Air National Guard here in New Hampshire. Oh, see, this is and they it. Often, yeah. you know, they often gets we get misidentified. Uh, the Army National Guard is the helicopters. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So almost as bad as the name. <laughs> I think I did that earlier, so we're going to have to edit that song. Oh uh, yeah, that's yeah. Right. it's an easy no, mistake. It's a good to clarification, though, for yeah. sure. Um, so that's it. Short and sweet. Ty was the one that um, sent you our way, and we really appreciate um, you offering to come in and uh, chatting with us. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. This yeah, is this fun. is going to be All really right. a yeah. great chat. Great. So, Luke, why don't we start off? Could you give a little bit of sort of background about where did you grow up? And can you talk a little bit about like we're always interested in sort of like your exposure to outdoor activities and um, anything to do with hiking or fishing or anything like that? Sure. Uh, so I was born uh, in New Hampshire, Nashua, New Hampshire. I grew up in Wyndham with uh, my grandparents and my mother and my sisters. And um, my grandfather was a hunter. Um, he taught me to hunt when I was young. Uh, primarily deer hunting. Uh, my father was a fly fisherman, so I spent a lot of time fly fishing with him in the outdoors. And uh, I actually got involved with a church group. Uh, we had uh, the church that I attended when I was growing up had a uh, Dana Lemieux was a, a guy that worked for AMC, and he worked up at the huts. So, I, uh, and there were some other avid hikers. So they would they got a group together and organized and we used to do uh, sections of the AT starting in Maine and do a couple overnight hikes uh, every summer and I had the opportunity to tag along with Dana and help out at the huts kind of like a dishwasher helping him out just volunteering and uh, that was kind of neat for a 14 15 year old kid to do that on the summers Um, and then uh, as I got uh, into high school uh, I got into through indoor rock gyms got into some rock climbing kind of transitioned uh, to some outdoor climbing. Uh, And then in college, as I ran up a tuition bill and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, um, there was a guy in my class, he was in a mountain infantry unit in the New Hampshire Army National Guard. And um, he kind of chatted with me. He's like, well, you know, know, they have a student loan repayment program and a tuition waiver, yada, yada. And this was August of 2001. And he said, you know, I looked into it and it was a mountain infantry unit, uh, which to me made sense at the time. I was like, sure, I like being in the mountains. I like climbing in the mountains. I'll do a unit that spends time out in the woods in the mountains. Sounds like a good deal. And, you know, I can take advantage of some of the, the school benefits, the GI Bill stuff. And so I joined on August 23rd, 2001 which was a couple of weeks before 9-11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, I was actually at the Manchester Armory on 9-11, picking up my initial issue of boots and gear when the, when the tragedy happened. And um, so that was, you know, a bit of a game changer, uh, you know, changed kind of the, the role of the National Guard uh, going forward, uh, more of an operational unit uh, force than a strategic one. But um, so uh, I deployed with Mountain Company to Iraq uh, in 2004, 2005. Um, came back and was ready, you know, went back to UNH to finish up my degree, um, which was in journalism. So I hmm. finished the five years of the mountain company and was getting ready to get out and uh, had the opportunity to go into a public affairs detachment as a print journalist photographer for the Army National Guard uh, to kind of get some experience that I was hoping to, you know, tie in with my degree from UNH. And uh, that opportunity led to a full-time opportunity working for the National Guard. Um, New Hampshire National Guard. And I did that for 
a while and deployed again uh, to Iraq with the Public Affairs Detachment. And I came home about 10 years into my service and was really thinking about just getting out or, or staying in for the full 20, you know, for retirement. And uh, my my boss at the time kind of put me on the path to aviation, said, well, if you were going to, you know, to stay in, what would you want to do? And I said, well, the only thing I really, the only thing I ever wanted to really do was fly and uh, found out there was a path to do that. Uh, and I met my wife when I got back uh, from the 09, 2010 deployment. So it was kind of a big year. I met her um, and uh, said, you know, at the time she, she said she wasn't too into dating anyone at the time. And I was like, well, that's great because I'm planning on going to Fort Rucker for flight school for two years. So let's just <laughs> hang out for a few months until I leave. And a few yeah, months. See, that's the move. I'm not that into you either. <laughs> 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 and then, um, yeah, it, that few months have turned into, um, you know, coming up on 13 years in October. And uh, we went to Fort Rucker together, flight school for a couple of years. Uh, I came home and, um, and deployed to Afghanistan as a pilot, uh, medevac pilot with the Charlie Company 3rd, the 238th. And uh, we got back from in, that in 2014. And I, uh, I was a traditional guard. We may probably talk about that a bit later, but I was a traditional, what we call an M-Day uh, guard soldier. So I was, I had a full-time job outside of the army, nine to, you know, 40 hour a week job. And then I would come in and fly in the evenings during the week to maintain my proficiency and my skill. And, you know, we have certain requirements we have to do. So you got to come in and fly during the week to do that. And then on the weekends and then other training events. And, and then when state missions come up, if you're available to do that, uh, to go out for the search and rescue stuff. And mm-hmm. after four years of doing that, uh, I had the opportunity to apply for a full-time position at the aviation support facility, the Army Aviation Support Facility in Concord, New Hampshire. And that is where I work now as an instructor pilot and a uh, aviation safety officer. Wow. When you yeah. go to flight school, do you get, do they just send you on sort of a generalist path or do you pretty quickly get funneled into like, you're going to be flying this type of craft or you're going to be doing helicopters over airplanes? Like how, how does that work? Well, there's going to be two approaches. If you're going down there for the, for National Guard, you're going to go down like in New Hampshire, if I, uh, we send someone on to flight school, it's already known that you're going to go through, uh, to be a Black Hawk pilot right now. That's what we have. We have two different flavors of Black Hawks and you may do one or the other while you're down there. On the active duty side, um, they recruit into it and it there's a initial phases of training where everyone's flying the same. It's a Bell, well, it used to be. When I went through, it was a Bell 206 Ranger. Um, now it's what they call the Lakota. It's an Airbus helicopter, but it's a smaller helicopter and you learn all your fundamental training on that. And then depending on how you do on test and your performance and other merits, they rank you from one to 50 or however many students there are. And when everyone completes the common training, they then have selection day where for the active guys who don't know what they're going to get, number one, we have here, pick your pick. Here's the opportunities. And as soon as he picks uh, Apaches, that's off the list. And number two gets to pick based on the remaining aircraft slots. And Hmm. that's kind of how they do it. So the better you do in the first part of this training, the better odds of picking the aircraft that you want to fly. When it comes to helicopters for the army. Interesting. 
when, when you so when you got in versus now do you if you if, if we have a young we have young people that listen to this podcast that are sort of trying to figure out like I even think about my own nephew like he he was talking to me when we were hiking about like you know maybe I'll think about the military I don't really know what I want to do if somebody did want to get into aviation um, at this point has it changed a lot the approach from when you went in and you know 10 20 years ago or do you have any sort of general advice for young people that might be looking to get into it I think now is a great time because, you know, I think we're in the same situation that most of the industry, most industries are in right now where there's um, a lot of people retiring and we have a lot of vacancies. And Hmm. I think that uh, we have, um, we have a lot of opportunity. Like I tell uh, other people, other guys, other people that are in the army guard now, it's like, if you, you ever thought about being a pilot, now is a great time to put in your packet. Uh, and apply for that process. It's a, you know, you fill out, um, you have to do, take some tests, you know, there's a, in addition to the normal military aptitude test that most people take, you have to take a, a flight aptitude test. They call it the SIFT and that can be a range to take. And, um, you know, if anyone out there is interested that's listening, you can just reach out to a New Hampshire Army National Guard recruiter um, and they can point you in the direction of CW3 Mike Fletcher, who kind of is the point of contact for the application process. But mm. yeah, you get that together. There's a there's a medical piece. You got to get a, a medical done, a physical done. Make sure you're fit for flight duty. And once you get all that stuff together, there's an interview process um, where you'll interview in front of a board uh, of aviators who will ask you a few questions, and then they interview all the candidates, and then they rank them. Uh, we get two slots a year to send people to flight school. Wow. So we'll pick two and send them. Hmm. Wow. And do, how much uh, mechanical knowledge do you pick up in flight school? Or is that is that an expected part of your job where you've got to be able to sort of walk around the craft and identify potential mechanical issues? Oh, it's a big part of it, for sure. Um, and as somebody, I actually didn't have an aviation background when I went in, uh, so I knew nothing about helicopters when I went to flight school. I mean, all the other criteria I had met, but, um, and there's people down there that have already flown, you know, when you get to flight school in the mm-hmm. civilian sector. So, uh, but you know, there's very, indi- you take knowledge, uh, take um, classes and exams on systems, on and, uh, hydraulics, electrical systems, fuel systems, um, the uh, engines, all of it. So mm-hmm. you get a pretty good, a thorough working knowledge of the aircraft. And a lot of that is, um, to help you understand the aircraft and how it works in case, you know, an emergency, understanding the systems and how they're working so you can better make decisions on um, safely landing the aircraft. So it's important to really know the machine that you're working with and the capabilities and the limitations of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then your current role right now is... Uh, instructor pilot and aviation safety officer. Okay, so can you describe a little bit about like what exactly your day-to-day duties are for that? Sure. Uh, so we, the reason the full-time staff exists and the Army Aviation Support Facility exists is because our units, which is the medevac company, Charlie Company, and then Able Company. So the medevac company is six helicopters, six HH-60 mics, which are relatively new, like mm-hmm. within 2018, 19, 20. Uh, beautiful aircraft, digital cockpit, you know, all digital displays. Mm-hmm. Um, they have flight director, they have coupling, you know, you can let, you can tell what altitude and airspeed to fly and the helicopter will do it for you with the push of a button. Um, and then, then we have the, the CAC, the Able Company, which has four 
helicopters and those are the Limas. So they're more the traditional steam gauges that people think about when right. they see a cockpit, a console. And um, they don't have that automated function that's hand flying. Mm-hmm. And um, both are equipped with hoist. Both can do the mission. But uh, all, all those units, the pilots have to meet the same flying our requirements as an active duty guy that gets paid full time on active duty to do it. And these guys have nine to five jobs and all those aircraft are maintenance intensive. So Mm -hmm. in order to support the, what we call the traditional guard force, you need to have a full-time group of people that have mechanics available to work on the aircraft when they're done being flown. You know, they have a lot of, uh, you know, a couple hours of maintenance can be tied to one flight period. And then on the, on the, the skill side of the set, we have guys that are being trained. They're out of flight school. They're brand new. So they need to be trained up on how to do our specific. You learn the fundamentals in flight school. Now you come to New Hampshire and as people that hike up here, it's the same thing with the flying. It's a very unique environment in the White Mountains when it comes to flying due to the weather. You know? Say that again. So we <clears throat> guys get up here. So we got to teach them. This isn't like flying in Alabama where you've been for the last you know, year and a half. And then you don't do hoist work in Alabama. You know, you don't do mountain approaches. You don't land to um, these places that we have to do up here. So that's a, that's ours established training program to get people up to speed. And you do that with an instructor pilot. And we have, um, and then we have evaluations we have to do. You know, we need an instructor pilot to do annual evaluations like any pilot, like an airline pilot, an army pilot, and you have to do annual evaluations to make sure mm-hmm. you're proficient, still capable of doing your job. And then, um, and then, um, like I said, and then just sometimes it's just a matter of going out and you're not necessarily training someone to do a new task. You're not evaluating a task. You're just flying for proficiency. It's a perishable skill, especially right. the uh, night vision goggle piece of it. That's important to mm-hmm. get out and do. I just had a quick question about the the digital console versus the old analog. Do you have any preference or are they, they're quirks one to the other? So The old one's so much cooler. <laughs> I bet. So there you go. I'm There's just wondering, one. like, any glitches? So I think, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, um, you know... <laughs> this is the first aircraft that I flew. So um, I, I think when we got the, the mic models, which were newer, I think everyone was partial to the, the older ones. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest, so the real, the situational awareness in the digital cockpit is, is hard to beat. I, I can imagine. Um, yeah. And the biggest thing for what we do with search and rescue is we are able to, uh, so the biggest thing used to be with Lima's daytime searches are harder than the night searches for us when, when the, when the people are found. Right. Sure. So you get even, so you mentioned earlier, um, I think it might've been on the previous podcast. You guys were talking about the 911 calls and the triangulation, yeah. uh, what they have yeah. now. So we've been, we've been, that's been an advantage for us as well. Cause now we can be provided a, a, a grid that's fairly accurate. Mm. Not that long ago. And, and still sometimes if someone doesn't get a 911 call off, you know, even when they're found, it's like we're, we're on the East side of Mount Matt Madison, you know, somewhere or yeah. on the backside of Jefferson. So you're out there and you're trying to look down through the trees and try to find these people. And, and again, we have no maps, you know, like digital maps, you know, like you can pull out a, we used to take paper hiking maps with us and, you know, and that's what we're, we're looking at a paper hiking map and the helicopter <laughs> looking down on the mountain and some of those trails and the woodland yeah. are kind of hard to follow. I've seen you guys do that. <laughs> I, on my one flight with you guys. That's what I saw, like the old paper map. Hey, where was Gio? Oh, yeah, it's yeah. over there. Like, just check the map. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which peak is this? <laughs> That's uh, great. And now we now we have these, uh, the hiking maps are uploaded digitally to our, our digital maps. And we have an icon that shows us who we are. And now when, when wow. someone says, start it, you know, start it, you know, Kingsman, 
and come down the Kinsman Trail from Kinsman Pond on your way down. We're oh. below Kinsman Pond. Now we can fly right to the pond on the map. On you know, we'd see it and and, and we can put ourselves over the trail on the wow. way down. So it helped. It's been for daytime rescues. It's it's sure. been a huge help. The only limitation between the two aircraft is that the new one that we have, the HH, is heavier mm-hmm. than the um, the Lima, and so as a result, there are some factors when it comes down to fuel. Like you know, obviously, fuel is an issue when we're up in the whites. Bingo, you know, mm-hmm. we can only we want to make sure we have enough fuel to a um, conduct a mission, get the person to where they need to go, whether it's a transfer, an ambulance transfer in the Cannon Mountain parking lot. Gorham yeah. airstrip or if we're you know taking them north to the hospital taking them to Littleton mm-hmm. or all the way up to Dartmouth and Lebanon so we get a factor in you know where we're going to be taking this person how much fuel do I have how much time do I have on station so mm. the the heavier aircraft takes more gas to burn kind of narrows you know squeezes that window a little bit um, power requirements yeah, it's it's not too bad for where we operate here in the uh, northeast where we have less power available just because of the heavier aircraft, but it's not in a uh, in the environment that we're currently operating. It's still not too much of a concern. You know, mm-hmm. we're aware of it, but we're pretty comfortable in our, how much power we have available to do a hoist mission, even you know, off the top of Tuckerman's or something. <laughs> wow. Well, I want to get more into the missions, but before we do that, um, Jamie, we want to hear a little bit about your background. So. We heard a little bit, so he played it cool in the beginning when you guys first met. But <laughs> sure what, what is your background? And you know, are you a, a hiker, outdoors person? Can you talk a little bit about your background? Yeah, I uh, I was born in Mass, but grew up mostly in New Hampshire, and I went to Salt Lake City for for college. And seeing Utah, such a beautiful place, made me want to travel. I was so taken back by how beautiful just our country was. I wanted to see even more. So I did a lot of bad backpacking after that and uh, mostly Europe, Scandinavia, um, Central Asia, Western China, went through Tibet and, and Nepal and did some cool, uh, some cool hikes there, which was pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, came back here and thought I was just going to travel the world forever and <laughs> till I met this guy. <laughs> Because I up in Alabama, yeah, yeah. I, was, then I ended up in Alabama, yeah, <laughs> which was actually really beautiful. It was, it was a year and a half honeymoon. It was yeah. great. <laughs> I was I was taken back by how how uh, amazing Alabama was. Actually, it was it was a cool. Oh, yeah. place. And then what is your what were you doing while he was in flight school? I had our first child. I had our daughter oh, okay. Rose, and I was staying home with her. I was taking some dance classes, and. <laughs> just uh, walking a lot and meeting all the other military wives, which was a lot of support on post, which was really oh, neat to see. I can imagine. And then eventually you made, you both made your way back up to New Hampshire. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Came up here and bought a place in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. So we could be close to where he, he was working. Excellent. And then from your perspective, what was it like watching him go through flight school? Was it stressful for, I mean, obviously you got newborns and things like that, so it's going to be stressful no matter what, but um, was it, was it a lot of like uh, activities and alone time, I would assume when he's off training? Yeah, definitely. So he, the memorization he had to go through and the amount he had to focus was unreal. Um, There was, you know, we had to be very quiet with a baby that's very tricky um and I was I was very impressed with how diligent 
he was and how rigorous the program was and what it required of him. And it was, it's really impressive how much information they pack in their brains in that short period of time. And it, Fort Rucker is a really remarkable place. There's helicopters constantly around flying and um, it's, it's neat to see the army training these guys up and it's, it was, it was, it was neat to see a good, good experience. Yeah, do they do family events like take your take your family up on a helicopter day or anything? Oh like that? no! It took me eleven years to finally get myself into a helicopter. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, and the, and I can't go in the same helicopter as, as him because oh yeah, you know, granted he's going to showboat, then something might go wrong, and then <laughs> kids left without parents. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so I did get my first flight about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and do you remember who flew you? It was Hamilton, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and it was it was so gorgeous. I mean, just to be able to have that bird's eye view looking down. And I was I felt like a kid in a car seat, though. You're strapped in and you just want to move more, but you're strapped in so tight to your seat. You just wanted to move around and see. Uh, but it, was, uh, it took me a while to get in there. But once I got in there, it was a very, very cool experience. Wow, eleven years. So, uh, you you finally got your flight. Now, are you? So you you're probably in the middle of it, like the kids are sort of in that activity where they're doing sports and activities and all that fun stuff. Do you get to get? Do you guys obviously you get the date night tonight? But do you get to get out on your own and do any sort of outdoor activities um, with or without the kids, or is it mostly just focused on kids' activities right now? No, we try. We try and get out as much as we can together as a family. We do. Um, we're with 4-H, so we do a winter hike challenge with them. So I really like winter hiking. Um, we keep it pretty minimal. Our youngest is seven right now, so nothing crazy. But we'll throw on some spikes and 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 hit some trails that way. And Luke does tons of fishing with the kids, and he's teaching them how to shoot now too, and a lot of ice fishing too. A lot of winter activities as a family. Uh, so that's great. And then we get out when we can together, but it's, it's, it's rare. Yeah. <laughs> These date nights are rare. <laughs> so the, you know, a friend of mine gave me good advice once that, you know, when you have kids, if you want to go back to doing the things that you love to do, you really got your kids to get them into it. So now that it becomes, you know, it gives you the opportunity to do it because the kids always come you know, first. So, yeah. so yeah, we, we've got them into it and we have some smaller hikes down in our area too, Mount Major, stuff like that, Gunstock down there that we can do hmm. by the lake, which are pretty pretty good views and stuff so you got to keep it short you know you want to make sure the kids stay into it though so if you make it this grueling experience they're not going to want to do it again correct yeah yep that's the tricky part it really is i've got three and i've got one that's stuck with it and the other two i think i push too hard Mm. and they're like i'm they're not into it so yeah um it is a tricky balance but you've got the right idea luke is to just keep it slow and keep it fun and short with them yeah (laughs) So, um, Luke, I did want to talk a little bit about like the uh, the actual helicopters that you're flying. I know you touched on this a little bit, but can you give some stats around the the Black Hawk? Like, how big are these things? How fast can they go? And you know, how much time in the air can you actually fly one of these when you're on a mission? Sure. So, uh, for anyone that's not familiar, uh, hasn't been around them. Um, the the rotor system, the main rotor system up top, right? So when that thing's spinning, it's you know, from tip to tip, you're probably looking about roughly 55 feet. So that's 55 feet across. And from the front tip of the aircraft, the rotor system, to the the tail tip, you're looking about 65 feet. Mm -hmm. So, which is why we, you know, finding a place to land, you know, if it's a pinnacle or a ridgeline, 
you know, it's cleared out with trees above the tree line, there's a pretty good chance that we can land one, two wheels to pick somebody up. But if it's in a forested area, like we're not landing that anywhere, which is why we're going to have to do a hoist operation. Mm. So that being said, that's about how big it is. So weight wise, I said we got kind of two different flavors, the Limas and the Mikes. The Lima, as you want to call it, the old school one with the steam gauges. Um, Typically when we take off with a crew of four and a full tank of gas, you're probably looking around 15,000 pounds. Uh, the newer ones, we're probably looking closer to 17,000, 17 and a half thousand pounds with the full tank of gas. Um, so it's pretty, it's still, I've been doing this for a little bit over a decade now and it's still boggle. Yeah. It's still amazing to watch and think that just wind a rotor, you know, it's a big giant fan is lifting up 17,000 pounds. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then as far as the airspeed goes, so, uh, the published for the army, the, the published max speed, you know, is, is 193 knots, which in miles per hour equates to about, you know, 222. Um, that can be subjective, you know, depending on what altitude you're at, um, you know, and depending on the tailwind, you, you know, you could be doing a little bit faster than what the aircraft is indicating. Um, we typically have to take in a few different considerations. We generally travel around 120 knots or 130, 132 miles an hour. And that's for a few different reasons. Um, one is, you know, we want to maximize our fuel, right? So mm-hmm. if we take off from Concord and we're going up to the whites to do a mission, uh, you want to make sure you have as much fuel as possible for time on station. So if we take off as fast and especially if it's unknown right mm-hmm. if if we're not exactly sure what the situation is or exactly where someone is or if this is just we haven't found they haven't found him yet and it's just as a helping assistant a search time on station you want to maximize so based on a few different factors the aircraft it, it's better off to fly a little bit slower and take a little bit uh you know and you'll get there maybe a couple minutes later but you'll have more fuel while you're on station and that'd be a better situation than having to stop what you're doing to go get gas and come back and spend oh, yeah. all that time <clears throat> so you know we're generally flying around 130 miles an hour um that's about weight as far as onboard. So, you know, if we, uh, the, the Lima has more seating, you know, if we had to take up, uh, you know, you can fit with all the seats in the back, you know, you put 10 people in the back with a crew of four, um, the HH 60, the medevac bird, um, has four litter pans in the front and then the two crew chief seats. And then there's a couple, like three seats on the back wall. So, um, if you had to move passengers, you can lower down those litter pans and put, three drop down seats on each side to add another six seats for passengers, but it's not really built for moving people. Mm-hmm. It's built for, you know, obviously it's a mission of medevac. Wow. Mm. With the, uh, with the flight crew. So you said there's four people. What are the typical roles that the flight crew does or how is it broken down? Sure. For uh, a medevac bird, we typically, you have a pilot in command and you have a pilot um, or co-pilot, if you want to call them that. And uh, in the back, you have a crew chief, uh, and a medic. The crew chief, it will be the hoist operator. Um, he'll operate, he gets trained to do that. And then the medic will ride the hoist cable down so that they can provide any, you know, triage. If there's more than one person injured, you know, they can triage who needs to come up first or, and if they, they can kind of evaluate, um, the injury as best they can, they'll get a, if we've been, <laughs> it's always amazing. Uh, most of the, I would say many of the times that we get called in to do support, um, it seems like there's always an off-duty nurse or doctor bystander that happens to be there that's already helping out quite a bit yeah. and has a pretty good handle on what's going on or from their perspective. So that can kind of inform the medic. So in addition to riding the hoist, packaging the patient, calling, and then, you know, he evaluates, you know, am I going to take this person up on a jungle penetrator or are we going to have to call for a basket? 
and you know that's you know where their training come in we have uh, our medics are, are um, well trained a lot of them are most of them are full-time paramedics if they're not working for the the working for us full-time actually they all right now are traditional guard guys and they're all like i said they work in some guys fly on med flight civilian uh some guys work for fire departments some guys work for hospitals um as uh paramedics and so uh they're pretty capable guys and um so yeah, the, part of the process where they bring to the crew is helping to dis- help the pilot in command. Who the pilot in command is the more experienced, typically, of the two pilots, and he's you know got the final decision on pretty much everything. So if anything, any mistakes are made, that's going to fall back to him, you know, and he makes the final call on what we do and where we go. So um, either the medic can help inform the pilot in command. You know, this is where this is we got to get this guy to Dartmouth and Lebanon. You know we can't waste time if we bring them over to Littleton they're just going to stabilize them and wait for Dart to come get them and bring them there so we can save this guy some time and just sure. fly straight there and bring him up to Lebanon anyway gotcha um, and then the crew chief is uh, again operating as an air crew member in the aircraft um, helping us to land those guys help us when we as pilots go to land on a you know a tricky spot uh, a lot of times they're you know we can't see the entire aircraft behind us is too big right so you have some sp- spatial sense of where everything is but in the end you know you, you guys know what it's like up there you're trying you know there's a lot of red ledge, ledges and cairns and drop-offs that could damage the belly of the aircraft or the mm. tail boom so those guys are hanging out the window helping clear the tail and the, the underbelly of the aircraft to make sure we don't bang it up when we land on the top uh, pinnacles and stuff and so in addition and then they help us you know um with airspace surveillance and whatnot. And then the pilot, the PC, the pilot on the com- in command is typically off the controls during the mission and is kind of managing, he manages everything going on. Sometimes if it's a little bit trickier, maybe on experience level, he might take the controls if there's something challenging that maybe the pilot on the other seats, you know, feels more comfortable. The other guy's in a better position to do it, we'll do that. But generally the pilot in the right seat is the guy on the controls during the operation, especially the hoisting piece. Mm. When you get called for a mission, I'm assuming there's like different definitions for mission types. Like clearly like this scenario is like we're going to talk about a mission that happened on Lafayette where it was a known, you know, a known patient that had to be extracted. So, you know, you're not going up there to do like a a long search or anything. It's like, okay, I'm just going to pick this person up and we know the coordinates. But I'm assuming there's also scenarios where you've got to search for somebody. You kind of know where they are, but you have to do a little bit of a search. And then there's mission types where you you have no idea where the person is and you're doing visual searches. So can, can you talk a little bit about like how you, how do you get notified of missions and then how do you define those mission types? Sure. So notification goes out. Fishing game will usually be the, the point of contact. They reach out to us through Colonel Matamore. They give him a heads up and say we're going to be we're going to be requesting the support of a helicopter. And then at that point, we don't have twenty four seven medevac standby. So like when we go overseas is a, is a deployment setting. Um, whether it's it you know Iraq Afghanistan or even just support. We had a units that go over to Kosovo. Um, we do sometimes we do humanitarian missions down to Guatemala where we do medevac standby. And in that case, we have crews that you're prepared. It's a 15 minute wheels up. The call comes in for for again, like you said, there's different standards at the call, right? An urgent nine line medevac drops in an overseas environment. You have a crew that is there 24 seven standing by, ready to go, and that call drops in within 15 minutes. Their wheels up and on their way. In New Hampshire, we don't have that 
24-7 standby. So the call comes to Colonel Matamor and he immediately starts calling to find out who's available, who's in state, who's nearby. So I'd say our general response time, you know, that's why a lot of the full-time guys get tagged because we live close by. We have M-Day guys, you know, traditional guard guys that live further away. So, you know, they the flight operations contact gets notified and this, you know, one of the full-time pilots will start figuring out who's available for the front seaters for the pilots and who's, and then some of our backseater full-time people will start DeAngelis or we'll start reaching out, finding out who's available for the crew chiefs and the medics. And we had to quickly via phone text, figure out who's taking the mission and who's, you know, makes sense to get there. You know, and again, we have rules like, you know, there's no drinking 12, you know, it's the 12 hours bottle to throttle. Right. So case in point more recently, last week and on Sunday, I'll use that as an example. Fishing game reaches out around 7.30 PM saying we need the support of a helicopter. Matamore, we'll start going before we get the details. We'll start rolling out, Hey, who's available. And you know, 7.30 on a Sunday night, you got to find somebody that hasn't had a beer or a glass of wine with dinner. And that can be challenging, but we did, we had guys available. If it's a known weekend that we get a lot, you know, you have the holiday weekends where there's a lot of climbers. We'll kind of identify crews. They're not in a paid status to be on standby. We'll be like, Hey, who will shorten the call response list. Who's around this weekend. It's, it's 4th of July weekend, Memorial day weekend. Who's available for a mission. If one comes down, cause they typically will. And, and those guys will usually kind of make sure they're, available and haven't been drinking and are ready to go if they get a call. And then, um, you know, you're looking at from fishing game calling to wheels up, maybe depending on how close the people are, what time of day, an hour and a half to get wheels up. So, and then from, you know, getting the call, the crew gets there. Um, usually by the time you show up in Concord, the pictures developed from fishing game about what the situation is. Like you said, Mike, uh, do we know where they are? Do we know is, is this sometimes depending on the injury, we'll know right away that this is going to be a basket left. We go prepared to do any of it, you know, cause sometimes you don't, we un, unknown condition, right? Um, you see a lot of leg injuries, stuff like that. Um, that's going to be a basket, you know? Uh, so we'll get the call. We show up at the flight facility and, um, we start looking at weather as the pilots, the, the backs of the crew chief will go down and start looking at the, the log book, the aircraft, making sure it's ready to get pulled out. The medic starts gathering all the gear together that we have staged in a room for our state response. And get, there's always identified the helicopter that's going out on a mission. Here's the gear. It's, you know, the more structured, it's a very, it's a process that we rehearse and do over and over. So everybody disperses and does their role. Um, the pilot in command is going through the paperwork for the mission briefing and approval process, understanding what the weather is, what the risk is. Um, he gets briefed appropriately while the pilot is planning, doing some mission planning, um, the other pilot. And then they all come together as a crew brief touch brace with fishing game. Sometimes fishing game has an officer available to hop in the aircraft with us. Um, sometimes they're not, uh, sometimes we're going, trying to reach them on the radio on the way up. When it, um, comes down to weather, do you ever take into consideration, um, okay, the forecast looks terrible, but bird's eye view on the ground, like, will you respond if somebody at command says, well, we see, you know, we see blue sky. Will you go by anything on the ground or is it strictly a forecast that you rely upon? So it's an informed, right? You're pulling from different assets. It's, it's an okay. informed decision. So gotcha. life limit. So we're typically, if we're getting a call, it, it it's, it's going to be usually life limb or eyesight of some kind. So there is a sense of urgency. Yeah. Uh, so there will be, you know, the weather, I mean, I have not had the weather to say I'm not going to go mm-hmm. so far. 
you know, so we've had less than ideal weather, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and I think again, at that, that point, you look at the experience level of the crew and the colonel or the briefing, the mission approval officer, and you make a plan. You say, hey, you, it's an ongoing risk mitigation process. Yeah. So right now, hey, hey sir, this is, you know, this is what the weather is at Concord. This is what, and we all know the weather in the whites are, you know, it's, you don't get great. I mean, you have the Mount Washington Weather Observatory, but sure. that doesn't mean it's going to be, that's up, you know, it could be a lot different, you know, down at, here at Dickey Welsh. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you, you do the best guess, you know, you look at, you look at some civilian weather reporting and say, hey, sir, here's what the weather's at Concord. Here's what the weather is at Laconia. Here's what it is up in Mount Washington. And yep. this is my plan. We're going to go to here. We'll make a weather call at this place. And we're going to launch. We're going to go. And um, if, Check so we had an aircraft that, you know, they, they got all the way up there and they was just, they were in the clouds, right? Mm-hmm. They, they came and they approached it and it was just in the clouds. There's nothing we can do right. at that point. But they flew up there to make sure like, we'll go until it's, you know, we'll, we'll fly and then until we can't, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if you have to make the weather call, usually the weather calls are made en route. They're usually made in the air, not on the ground. I mean, even unless it's like truly a blizzard or nor'easter, like sure. there's just no way you're going to go. Right. Right. So, I mean, there are even wind limitations on being able to start the aircraft. 45 knots. You know, if the wind exceeds 45 knots on the ramp, you're not technically supposed to start the aircraft or start it, you know, shut it down because <laughs> it could damage it. But so, I mean, with the wind, you know, with weather being absolutely a no-go. And I mean, you know, I, Ian Hamilton, um, one of the guys we have now who's just uh, been working for us for a long time, where you'll find me with the Katie Matrasovas um, mm-hmm. story. You know, he launched and that was pretty bad weather. Yeah. Um, in fact, they actually got up there and talking with him and it's in, it's in Ty's book. But, um, you know, they got up there and they were able to get there. But, you know, the winds being what they were, even if they, you know, had been able to hear, they just weren't going to be able to land in it, you know. Right. So it's it's a it's it's a process where you just kind of make the weather call. Sometimes they're all right, I got enough weather to leave Concord. Okay, I have enough to get to this point, I have enough to get to this point, and always having a, a plan, uh, an out plan, an escape plan of you know, if the weather does get bad enough, how am I gonna get back? So where am I gonna go back to? What's my plan? And you know, I, I will say, as you guys probably know too, in the whites, you know, the weather, you know, sometimes the weather is a lot worse than that. You know, you can escape out to the east or the west, get it into the Connecticut River Valley or out towards Conway mm. where it gets lower in terrain and you kind of can escape the weather out the way, you know, those directions. Has the digital um, improved your ability to respond to weather? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gives you more eyes. Situational awareness. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. The cases where you have these multi-day searches, and I know they don't happen that often, but you know there's been a handful over the years that I've been paying attention to this stuff. What are those missions like when you are working with very little information? I'm assuming you're taking your lead from fishing game around, like here's where we want you to start, but eventually, I'm um, um, I'm guessing that you know when you're looking for somebody and you don't have a good read on their location, you know at some point the crew has to just start sort of viewing areas where they think maybe it may be likely like do you just look in all the drainages first or how, how exactly does that work well it's, it's it's very similar to what you know when we from talking to fishing game and some of the rescue guys and the volunteer rescue guys it's very similar in how they organize i mean after you see a few of these over the you know there tends to be a trend on where people go like when they're lost and where they they go to low areas they they try to get down the mountain and they get off trail so um it is a communication in any type of operation is always like probably, you know, this can be, 
it can make or break you. So it's, it can be a big obstacle or when it's working out great, it can make things go really well. So um, recently we've we've had a increased communication with uh, fishing game and rescue services through the, the use of the Harris radios, the TDF, what we call TDF and radios, but handheld radios. So we now... Um, we can now talk directly to fishing game on the ground and their CP. And we used to not, you know, it used to be a matter of, you know, you only has good as much information as you got till you climbed in the aircraft and then you were in the air. And, you know, maybe if you were, you, you might get flight operations. If you could get a hold of them, might get an update by a telephone, then manage to get a hold of the aircraft and let them know with some kind of update. But, uh, now, now with air to ground capability, like it has greatly alleviated the process where they can tell us real time, Hey, these guys just found a water bottle off trail on the Southeast side of the ridge line. Mm-hmm. They're about, you know, whatever, a couple hundred yards down. Can you start there? And just, they can give us direction on where from the ground perspective. And if, if nothing else, if there's no indication from the ground crew and every, everybody's starting from scratch, you know, you kind of you just create a, like a grid square search pattern, just like they're doing on the ground, but you're doing it from the air and we'll, we'll focus a little bit more. You go slower over the heavily vegetated areas and then, you know, you can winter time is, you know, you got the advantage of the snow for tracks to try to help find things. But, um, you know, uh, I always tell people like, it's so wild. Uh, earth tones man everybody loves making climbing <laughs> and hiking gear in earth tones right, right. what happened to the 80s <laughs> you know <laughs> slime green <laughs> so um we always you know i you know my here's my uh psa so I, I like to hunt a lot and one of the things i know that like a lot of hunt, so hunting you know you're orange right everywhere's right. some orange and out west especially backpacking they, they design all these hunting backpacks that if you get to an area you need to, they have the, like a little orange flap that can pull out of a hidden pocket. You can drape this big orange flap down over your backpack if you mm. needed to make sure that people could see you when you get into your hunting area. Yeah, they do a similar thing with hiking backpacks because that'd be be nice if you could pull that out. That led us to a, uh, a question on the script um, in regards to um, strobes. I mean, if you're a hiker and you do get in trouble, is it? Is that beneficial for your crew to see like a strobe or certain colors or? I think the, so, you know, if it's dark out and BGs, I mean, you, you, we, with the, uh, the night vision goggles that we use to fly with, uh, Yes, those are great because I mean, the, I did a, a last year. I think I had a mission. I think that was the backside of Mount Madison. We had to hoist a, a, a woman off the trail, um, not far from the hut, and we. Saw, I mean, people were all with her with flashlights, and we could see it. Like we yeah. knew, oh, there they are. Okay. So you don't even need a strobe; just having a flashlight of any kind. Um, okay. If we're looking for you, uh, a pen flash, flashlight is going to stand out like a beacon for us. Now, where the strobe might be more handful is at dusk, that du- that going from sunset to dark when it's still not quite dark enough for the goggles. And but a strobe light might that flashing would catch somebody's attention from sure. the cockpit. That would catch our attention from the cockpit for sure. Gotcha. Hmm. Jamie, do you ever have any like um, like if you plan like you know the kids have a birthday party planned or whatever? Do you know like he's going to get called out on a mission? Like, do you <laughs> ever have any like a sixth sense on what when he's going to get a call? The vibe. You just never, you just never know, and you never know until it's actually happening, too. And he'll, you know, sometimes he, there's a mission coming, and then it, it doesn't happen until I don't believe it until he's actually out the door and gone because it things change so quickly with the army. I've learned to be very flexible and fluid. So 
<laughs> do you tend to stress out or are you just like, I'll see you when you get home? Oh yeah. No, I don't stress out about it anymore. I think at the beginning I did a little when I was adjusting for sure. Um, but now it's, we're so happy when he's there, but we know, you know, that could change at a, you know, how about you? Quick moment. Do you, do you have any stress or do you sleep well at night knowing that you could yeah. get the call like at two in the morning? Oh no, the, the getting, getting a phone call is a stress. And yeah. it's funny, you know, too, like on the week, usually the call comes from the boss, Colonel Matamore. Yeah. Uh, and so, or maybe it's uh, Bill Fish, who's uh, another one of our instructor pilots, he's a standardization pilot at the uh, facility. So when my phone rings on a Saturday, like in, in the evening and you look at it, it's one of those two, I'm like, they're not calling to see how my weekend's going. Right. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, there's no stress over it though because we love what we do. And, sure, sure. You know, I mean, I, ideally, you know, you don't want someone to be getting hurt or injured, right? But it's like, you know, a good comparison I heard someone say, it's like, you know, it's like playing on the basketball team. Like you practice, you practice all week. You don't have to sit on the bench during the game, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we train and we train hoist. We train in the mountains. We train mountain approaches and mountain landings, all that stuff. So uh, it's like we have the skill set. So when we have the opportunity to use it to help, then I think everybody's eager to do it. I mean, most of the guys... Um, in fact, it's really probably the opposite. There's probably a lot of guys that uh, may, for one reason of where they live or whatnot, haven't had the opportunity, some of the younger guys, to do a state mission, and they're looking forward to having the opportunity to come in and do one. So <laughs> I think, you know, yeah. no anxiety over it. Okay, now, now what about uh, post-mission services, like critical stress, debriefings? I mean, you must have seen some things or some of your crew that have left a mark. I think that, so usually... in the, it, what we do is, is like under high stress moments, you do what you're trained to do. Right. So, and I think that we, you know, people always ask, Oh, isn't what you do dangerous or is it risky? And you know, flying is inherently dangerous because if something goes wrong, you're going to fall out of the sky. But we have so many processes in place and we train that, you know, it's, we approach it. What can we do to mitigate this risk? And we train hoist very well. We train what we do in the mountains. Um, and because we have a great training program, we have great guys. We have um, a small state. So with a small state, you get to be pretty selective on who you have in your group. And we do a pretty good job through the, the boarding process to bring good people in. So through all that process of doing it, like when you get there, it's not it's not like a Top Gun Maverick movie. It's like, okay, this is where we're going to start, where we're going to go. And everybody's kind of all business and that's how you approach it. Uh, it's how you approach, you know, less than desirable weather or a hard place to get into um, things always, you know, and you, and you know, you guys know from your involvement with it that like, there's always gonna be little things that go wrong. There's little things like, you know, you lowered the, we, you know, we had a rescue, we lowered our guy down and he disappeared in the woods. We had our comms with him, but we lost comms with our guy. He disappeared in the woods and, you know, we're still trying to get back to him. And now we're in the aircraft and we're not, this was actually Kinsman pond. Uh, not last year. We hoisted a, a, a woman, had fallen, I believe, if I remember correctly, she the tent platforms they have up there. She like fell off and yep. she messed up her leg in a pretty bad way, and she wasn't going to get off the mountain. So we went in to get her, and it was pretty low ceilings. So ceilings were coming down. You know, that's like it. You know, again, that's the same kind of thing where you just make the decision, right? So we talked about it as a crew and said, all right, ceilings are coming pretty down. We don't want to get trapped in that little bowl of the where the pond's at, <laughs> and the ceilings were below the peak already. So we picked a spot on the wall where the rocks were and said, okay, when the ceiling gets below that level of the rocks, it's time to go one way or the other. And it was kind of taking a while to get hurt, to find her. I, we lowered down the crew chief cause we didn't have a medic. We lowered him down and Jordan Ford and he went looking for where she was. 
And we didn't want to loiter too much because you get all those tent sites up there and mm-hmm. we create a lot of wind. You've seen the aircraft. That's, <laughs> sure. Yeah, we don't want to cause any other damage by being up there. So we're off hovering over the pond and trying to check in and figure out what's going on. And mm. in the end, we ended up uh, actually, uh, I believe we had a guy from one of the PEMI rescue services because we actually lowered down the, uh, threw down the tagline for the basket to come down out of the helicopter. It's a line that holds control of the basket so it doesn't get blown around by the rotor wash. Right. And we, <laughs> the hoist operator thought it was our guy on the ground, but it turned out to be not our guy. <laughs> it was a bystander, but they oh, seemed to know okay. exactly what to do. They grabbed the rope. Sure, They sure. started working the rope as the basket came down. Interesting. Uh, they correctly disconnected the tagline and everything like that. Yeah. And, um, Afterwards, I guess when Aaron recovered some stuff, I found it was actually one of the a gentleman who had done some of our workshops that sure. comes from rescue that had been to the see yeah, how it gets statewide you know, training. Yeah, the statewide training. So he knew he happened to be there and knew exactly what to do. So it, it had a happy ending. But, That's great. Uh, so yeah, you make those calls. You make those weather calls. Like, this is it. This is what we can do. This is what we're going to do. And you just kind of. And then I think sometimes you know when you take baby steps. Okay, this is this is the obstacle we're facing. Let's overcome it. Let's get to the next step. Let's get to the next step. Let's, all right, now this is the problem. Let's get to the next step. And then mm. sometimes I think you, you look back and be like, wow, that was a, that was a pretty, that was a, one of the more difficult ones. But in the, in the moment, I don't think you really think about how difficult it is. You're just kind of approaching it as, you know, what can we do to accomplish the next task that we need to do? Yeah. And then afterwards you kind of look back and be like, yeah, that was a, that was one of the trickier ones that we've done. <laughs> Do you find, are there any of the crew members, I know you talked about sort of spotting geography and figuring out where trails are and summits and things like that. Do you do you find that there's some crew members that are like total geography geeks that know like the in, the White Mountains by, by sight, like no problem, they can pick out every summit in every area? Yes. So we actually had a guy that retired a little while back that uh, Bruce Gokey. Uh, who probably was actually listening to this podcast? I'd be surprised when he's an avid hiker. And uh, yeah, when you went, when you if you flew with Bruce, he could you know. And we still we didn't have the digital maps in, and he knew he knew where every he knew where every hut was. If you wanted to go up, and somebody said you had to go to Greenleaf Hut, he could take you right there without hesitation. He knew where every pond, every peak, every trail, like because he spent a lot of time. He also he flew for probably I don't I'm guessing thirty years, um, so he'd been up there his whole life flying and been up there his whole life hiking. So he knew it like the really like back of his hand, so to speak. And, uh, Jeremy Gray, uh, another pilot we have, um, is very, um, he's also, he's from the North country, uh, Groveland. And he is also, uh, again, from both his experience living up here and as well as the amount of time that he spent flying up here, he knows it probably not as well as Bruce did, but he knows it pretty well too. Wow. And do you, when you're doing like training missions or if you just happen to be doing a flyby on your way to a mission, do you ever just see like moose or beer or any wildlife that you, you spot on um, out there or is that not that common? So it's common for a while. It seemed like it was common for everyone but me. <laughs> I had a bucket list to see a moose. Like I really wanted to see a moose while I was out flying around. And I finally, uh, the Cardigan, we do a lot of practice approaches and landings at Mount Cardigan, just west mm-hmm. of Newfound Lake. And, um, I was coming off the back of it one day and it kind of to the north side. And, um, if you go down that way, as you fly away and down, there's a, there's a pond down there. There was a, a big cow moose. It was a summertime 
And I found that she was pretty much always there bathing in the afternoon. Oh. So, you know, I could almost depend to like do a flyover and see her there if it was mid afternoon. But so I was finally did check that block on that. We see at night. <laughs> it's funny as, as an, as a hunter, I, you know, I like to get out in the woods and it seems like you step on a twig and you, all you hear is the, the run and the white tail <laughs> bolting through the woods. Right. But yet I go fly up. We have a training area in the Franklin Dam on the river, on the Pemi up there, up north of the Franklin Dam. And we'll come into the LZ and they'll just stare at us, like at a hover, like wind's blowing, grass is blowing. And they just like- Isn't that funny? Not spooked at all by a helicopter, but huh. a, a twig snapping in the woods. Right. Gone. But, That's interesting. So yeah, we see deer, moose, bear. You see them running around to the woods, for hmm. sure. Sasquatch? <laughs> no, no Sasquatch. No yet. Sasquatch. No aliens. You haven't seen any. <laughs> what, that was to say. That's a great segue to the aliens. I wish I could say I did, Mike. I keep an eye out, especially under goggles at night. And I think there was. I read somewhere that like Mount the White Mountains had a pretty this rich history. One part of it had a pretty rich history in UFO sightings. Well, there's yeah. There's the the ben, the Barney or Betty and, Betty and Barney Hill. Barney Hill, yeah, yeah there was yeah, a well-known, like in the yeah. 1950s, they spotted like a, um, a UFO somewhere in Franconia. Yeah, by the Indian head, down. right? They were abducted yeah, yeah. and yeah, then exactly. returned. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. We all know we've seen the, the, the current UAP congressional hearings, and believe me, I, I, you know, I wish I could give you a good story of a UFO. The coolest thing I've seen in the sky, I mean, I see Starlink, you know, the satellites going over from time to time. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, no, no aliens yet. Yeah, I think the hills just got a hold of some of those mushrooms you guys were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, we had a, a, a search and rescue news piece that we wanted to cover with you. So um, there was a hiker that was rescued from Mont Lafayette. So this happened on July 30th around 545. Fishing Game was notified of a hiker that was having medical issues between the summit of Lafayette and... Greenleaf Hut. So um, this is a 42-year-old female from Gorham, Maine. So I guess apparently they put the word out to the AMC crew and they volunteered to hike towards the summit uh, to locate this hiker. And um, with the assistance of the hut crew, she was able to reach Greenleaf Hut around 710. Uh, unfortunately, the medical condition worsened and it was determined she should be evacuated as quickly as possible. So um, Air National Army National Guard was called uh, to see if they could assist in the rescue. Um, the guard arrived at Greenleaf Hut around 10:20. So basically, the call came in around 5:45, gets to the hut around 7:10, and then um, the the guard arrives around 10:20. And by about 10:42, the the you guys had hoisted um, the the victim up into the helicopter, and she was brought to Littleton Regional Healthcare. So, could you walk through a little bit like the timeline from your perspective on this one? Sure, uh, I can. So the call went out. Um, I think we had like 7:51 p.m. or right thereabouts. The call. I feel like I got a call a few minutes before that, but right around that time, um, the colonel reaches out and says, hey, who, who do we have available? Who can fly? So it's usually a group text. Text is really the fastest way it happens, right? Group text goes out to all the pilots. We have texting list for the pilots and medics and crew chiefs. And so one guy gets in charge of getting all the finding the pilots. One guy is in charge of finding the medic and the crew chief. And so call, text goes out. Um, guys respond via text. I'm in. I can. I can be there in an hour. I can be there in a half hour. Um, at that point, usually operations and or, you know, maybe Bill Fish or whoever's running the text chain will say, okay, you too, I'll take you too. You, you can be there. Um, so in this case, it was uh, 
Mark Styles, Styles and Don Killian were the two pilots. They were the closest ones available. Were good to go. They could fly. They're they're current and hoist, ready to go. So um, the crew arrived at the facility about eight thirty, um, ready to go and change. And, and again, we talked a little bit like, you know, it's funny. You know, I've gotten calls on a Sunday afternoon where it's like I'm home alone with the kids and she's either at work or maybe she's at something in town or with somebody and it's like I can fly and I know we might have a problem finding somebody. So it, now it turns into, okay, can I get a babysitter? How fast can I get a babysitter over here to watch the kids? And so, so I text her and say, hey, there's a mission. I got to go. Can you get home? I can't be home for another hour. All right, well, what if the next door neighbor, shout out to Nagel Town. Um, they, uh, <laughs> the Nagels are, yeah, they, uh, their daughters, you know, she's, she can come over and watch the kids so I can hurry up and leave and get to work Oh wow, while That's cool. the neighbor's kid watches our kids until she can get home. So it's, I enjoy, it takes a village sometimes to get a crew off the ground. <laughs> so by the time those guys get taken care of, they show up eight 30 at the flight facility and they start getting right into like I talked about earlier, the mission planning, looking at the weather, getting the aircraft tugged out checking the logbook, making sure everything's good to go with that, getting a crew brief together, which is a standard thing we do before every flight. Sometimes in the situations that are, we might be crew briefing at the aircraft or while crew briefing en route, if it's, you know, we need to go, uh, whether we're trying to beat weather or whether we're trying, you know, the situation is pretty dire. Like I think, you know, we've had one, a couple where people have taken some pretty bad tumbles and we knew that, you know, timing was probably every minute can count, right? So you try to be as efficient as you can possibly be. Um, so you're right. The timeline was, uh, I think they were wheels up about nine, nine fifty from Concord. Um, and then they got on station, uh, what we call on station, but arrived at the scene about 22 or 10, 10, 19, 10, 20. Um, and the hoisting process can take, you know, anywhere from 10, 15 minutes to a little bit longer, depending on, the situation, you know, did they have to move them, you know, how many people, sometimes we've taken up more than one person at a time. What's the, uh, what's the protocol when you're around the huts? I'm assuming like you have to keep a certain distance away just for safety. Um, uh, how far away from the hut do you have to stay? So that's, that's going to be a decision made by the air crew too. Like when we get up there, it's, they're going to, that, it's a very dynamic environment. So the crew, that's part of the concerns of the crew is, and, and I've had that where we've, you're hoisting and, you know, we ideally like to hoist from about 75 feet. What 75 feet does, it gets you far enough out of the rotor system, uh, uh, far enough above the ground that it minimizes, it's still going to be rotor wash and wind, but it's bearable from 75 feet up. Mm-hmm. And what that also does is it reduces the amount, uh, you know, you don't want to be up at 200 feet because we can do it from 200 feet if we have to. And you wouldn't feel anything on the ground, but it takes that much longer. You know, the, the shorter distance the hoist rider is going up and down, the less likely something more complicated could happen during that process. So it's a matter of being brief. So how low can we go? But if you're down around 50 or 30 feet, you know, now you're talking about blowing. You know, we all know there's a lot of dead trees up on the high timber lines and a lot, you know, are we going to blow a branch down off a tree and hit a guy in the head and cause two medical emergencies? Right. So the safety of the ground crews and the rescuers is a consideration we always have. And we're always evaluating when we get on scene and, you know, uh, and trying to minimize our impact. Um, So when it comes to being the huts, I mean, I don't, we'd be as close as reasonable to not injure anyone else or cause any damage or cause any damage to the hut. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that we would. I mean, those things are pretty sturdy, but. um, 
Hmm. You know, the, the terrain, we also, you know, when you're flying in, you're holding that hoist, you need good references. So we're, it's a combination of being, you know, what is the wind doing? What is the terrain doing? Where am I trying to get the person to? And what can I do to hold this aircraft as still as possible while lowering down the medic and picking them up? So, you know, it's, it's a dynamic environment, but again, you know, I said, you, we, we train it and, you know, you train it and you do it over and over that some of those decisions happen pretty quickly. Good. And so you're around 10, 20, you get there and you're, it takes you. So probably the first thing you're going to do is positively identify that these, this is the, this is the spot. These are the people that we're going to now Greenleaf hut. That's a pretty easy one because there's only one Greenleaf hut, but if they're not right at a hut, if they're on a trail somewhere, like, because there are a lot of good hikers is a pretty good community of people. So a lot of times if, we can't find exactly, we might hit a trail and there's a group of people waving frantically and then we're like, oh, this must be it. We come up on them and then they all point up trail. I'm like, oh, okay, it must be further up. Then we get to the next group of people waving frantically and I'm like, oh, here we go. And then they point up trail. And I think wow. one time on the way to Jefferson, I must have flown over four groups of people frantically waving until I found the actual patient that was uh, That's injured. good to know actually for hikers that listen. Yeah. But in the old days, especially for the trail map, that could be very helpful, right? Sure. Am I going up trail or down trail? Gotcha. So either way, pros and cons, but, um, so, you know, finding the first thing, get it on scene and like, okay, this is it. And then evaluating, um, get the medic on the ground. So we'll find a good spot to put him down and the medic goes down, he gets on the ground, the hoist comes off and then we move off station. We don't want to lose sight of them, especially from the woods. So we kind of come up and away so we can kind of monitor and see what's going on, on the ground. And then now due to advancements in communication, we can actually talk to the medic and the medic's like, okay, I got a back injury. I'm going to need the basket. So now we're going to go into the uh, routine of getting the basket out and down to the medic. And that's, that's usually the, the, a lot of cases. Um, if they're ambulatory, you know, we'll take the JP. But a lot of times if they're calling us, it's because the person's not ambulatory. Yeah, like they're not, so if they're calling us, it's probably going to be a basket lift. Yeah. Could you explain that a little bit for listeners, the penetrator? Sure. So we have a device called the jungle penetrator. Uh, it, you know, it's a yellow teardrop shaped device. Um, and within it, there's like Velcro straps that you can pull down a, um, a step, three steps. It's like mm. comes out one in equal, equally spread apart part. So that it drops down like on a hinge from the top so that you can straddle it and sit on it and you can lift up two people. And that's usually what would happen if the guy was, if the guy or girl was ambulatory, the medic would come down and say, Hey, Especially in sometimes cases we know if they're standing there, you know, like, all right, this is going to be a JP left. We're not going to waste any time here. Let's lower the medic down. He's going to get the patient, get him secured to it, mm-hmm. and then coming right back up. Or more often than not, we lower the medic down. He sends it back up. He takes the JP with him just in case he needs it. And then he realizes, okay, yeah, we don't need a basket. He'll call on the radio and say, hey, just send that hook back down. I'm mm-hmm. ready to go. We'll send it down. And he secures himself, the patient to the JP. They're kind of like facing each other and they just... Get, there's a strap around them and they come straight up. Gotcha. Um, now, if it's somebody that has to be immobilized, you know, do a back injury or a really bad leg injury or they're unconscious, um, the medic's going to call and say, hey, I need the basket. So at that point, while they, they'll we'll lower the basket down right away, we have to throw a rope out, you know, so that the tagline, we call it, so they can hold on to the other end of it while the basket comes down. Um, and once it's on the ground, they disconnect it cable hook comes back up in the aircraft and again we move off station so we're not disturbing so he can work mm-hmm. and uh he'll pack it you know he'll with assistance of whoever's there um he'll get the patient secured into the basket make sure they're strapped in and you know whatever treatment he can do 
Uh, and whenever he's ready, he calls us. We come back over. Uh, Hook comes back down, uh, hooks up to the basket. The basket comes up with the tagline still attached to keep it steady. We get it into the aircraft. Hook goes back down, picks up the medic. And then we fly off station and get them to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Quick question about that. So you, you can drop a medic. Um, I was on one mission on Cannon where you guys came in. A uh, climber had fallen and survived. was in rough shape. So you guys would uh, drop the medic and then the copter would leave. Was that more for safety of the situation down below? Yeah. So if this gonna, if it's gonna, um, well, for the cannon clefts, you were pretty easily, pretty easy to find them again once you dropped them down on the cannon clefts. So yep. if you're not too worried about finding them again, like in a heavily wooded area where you struggle to find them to begin with, you probably don't want to go too far off because mm-hmm. you, and you want to be right back as soon as you can. Um, yeah. If it looks like a situation where the communication is going to be like, you guys got guys tied to fixed ropes, you mm-hmm. know, trying to work on a guy, Gotcha. Yep. you might want to back off so that they can communicate better. Um, and in a situation where it's going to take some time to figure out how we're going to do this, you know, and you can still have radio comms. You're just going to be like, all right. It also relieves pilot, uh, um, it's easier to go fly in orbit around in a circle than it is to hold a hover off station for a while. You know, right, it kind of right. builds fatigue. And if it's going to be an in and out, in and out, in and out, which is preferred, great. But if not, you might want to go for a loop, stay loose on the controls, and then come back in for the hoist. Interesting. Yeah. Never forget that one. That was uh, that was really interesting. And then to finish it all off, you guys split because it was urgent, and the medic was hanging a couple hundred feet below yeah, the so copter. That, that was <laughs> as dr- they went south. It was like wow. Yeah, that was Joel Coelho. He also didn't forget that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I didn't get to do that on my spouse flight. <laughs> yeah. No, there was no horse. So that was atypical, I guess, because of the urgency. Well, no, what was atypical about it? So we we call that a dynamic uh, hoist. Okay. Uh, dynamic is either when you're, you're lowering the medic down as you come in, or more often than not, you're picking up the medic and flying away with it. And, gotcha. And again, that is usually to mitigate the disruption on the ground. Okay. from rotor wash. It also, if there's an oscillation uh, in the hook, so oscillations can be bad when everything starts moving and swinging. So one of the fastest ways to alleviate that is move. And, yep. and again, depending on the aircraft, depending on the experience level, depending on the environment, the holding that hoist can be, you know, can wear on you for a while, especially if it's a longer ongoing mission. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, the sooner we can move off station, as soon as that medic is up and clear of obstacles that we can fly away, it, is better for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that's a common practice to fly away with a medic, but usually you're not flying away over such a steep drop off where you're suddenly go from being 40, 50 feet off the ground to now being hundreds of feet off the ground out in the yeah. open. Usually, usually they're coming in pretty quick as you're coming down the ridge line. So they're 60 feet off the ground, 70 feet off the ground. So he, he jokes about that. He says, I that came like off one minute. Feet. There was, yeah, one minute there was gray. And the next minute I was like, Oh, and, and his comment, was uh he said i've always accept you know i mean knock on wood we nothing we've never had a mishap we've never had anything go wrong and and we've had we run a really great program and um i don't expect that to ever change (laughs) but of course you got to figure in the back of your mind it's just like flying the aircraft you kind of always get in the back of your head if something goes wrong right now what am i going to do yeah options are limited a guy dangling you know always you know the medics joke you know like He's like, I've always accepted that if should anything catastrophic ever happen, I probably won't have time to think about it before I hit. Mm-hmm. As I looked over a thousand feet, I was like, I'm going to have time to think about this one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's very true. But that's his story. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a different view for him than he normally sees. 
Gotcha. Makes sense. <laughs> wow. Wow. So this has been amazing to learn about sort of the inside baseball around how these missions. So I was watching like a helicopter flying around like two weekends ago up by Mount Washington. I'm assuming it was a training flight because there wasn't anything um, in the search and rescue, but it's just really interesting. And you may not realize this, but like I was out there hiking and I ran across a ton of hikers because it was in the presidentials and everybody's talking about the helicopter. When a helicopter goes up, everyone's like, oh no, that's not good. Um, so you do draw a lot of attention when we're hiking out there, but we're all happy to, to know that you guys are there to bail us out if we get in trouble. Yeah. It's always a, so we have a great opportunity. Like, uh, well, so, like you normally, you know, we fly up through Franconia Notch quite a bit on our way north, and like you know, we along with you know, we you know the Falling Waters Trail, which yeah, you know, we call it the Tripping Hikers Trail. Uh, yes, they, right. yes. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a, not a new thing. Like, <laughs> right. That seems to be where it's a lot of our calls come from. You know, sure. and uh, you know, we see we we get to do what we do because we have an area that we can practice and train in, and we appreciate that we have the mountainous terrain to train in and we value it and we try to what we call fly friendly we we don't want to be too disruptive we need to we want to accomplish our training and do what we need to do to be proficient so that we can do that support that search and rescue program but at the same time we don't want to you know we want to minimize our impact to the the community you know so Mm -hmm. we try to not we always um one of our things we do when we practice landing is we always do what we call a, a lz recon that we look at wind obstacles long axis of the lz and then the last one, the acronym of WOLF is Friendly Forces or Hikers. Like mm. if we go to train, we try to, if there's hikers on that, we're going to go somewhere else. We're going to try to find some place where we don't blatantly, you know, see people hiking so that we don't disturb them. Because it is, you know, it's a large aircraft. People are out in nature. But, yeah. and if we do fly by hikers, we try to, you know, give a wave and a tip of the wings. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, uh, let them know that we're here for, yeah. My wife was saying the other day that we should probably have a horn. Actually, so we were hiking Dickie Wells. So we were today we were hiking Dickie Wells, and the guys at work knew that we'd be out there hiking. And one of the guys was flying back, flew over Dickie today, you know, knowing that we'd be down there hiking. And oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they need, you guys need a horn on that Blackhawk. Well, yeah, a couple couple notable things you guys always try to get out for the, uh, the 9-11 hike. Mm-hmm. Hikers really appreciate that because it really just bolsters the event. Uh, but I had a question. Do you guys train up here weekly up on Welsh Dickey or nearby? Because I hear you guys all the time. You do. So at the, night. <laughs> the back, yeah, you do. So the backside of Dickey. So yeah. you know when you're on top of Dickey and then as you look to the north, you see that rock slab yeah. that's off trail. No we, we use that for training all the time. That's okay. a very popular spot for training the new guys on how to land and how to put three wheels down on a pinnacle. And so um, yeah, we figured. use and it's a nice spot because it's it is off trail. So mm. a lot of times uh, we'll see hikers over on Welch or something like that. But we can, and and if there are a lot of if it's a nice day, uh, and there's a lot of hikers, we may do one or two, and then we try to bug out so that you know yeah. we don't bother anybody. And everybody seems pretty happy to wave and take a few pictures when we do it, and then we move off and fly to another part of the whites and maybe get another couple practices approaching and somewhere else. Hmm. That's great. Well, you answered well, Mrs. Stomp's question. She wanted to know. <laughs> and I'm like, clearly that's them. <laughs> yes. Wow. And Tuesdays and Thursday nights, you guys probably notice it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, Good Luke, time. Jamie, thank you so much for all you do. It's uh, 
it's it sounds like it's a team here a team effort here so we appreciate it and uh like i said we sleep well knowing that you know we never want to be in a situation where we need a rescue but you know we found over the years you know we've analyzed enough of these search and rescue situations to know like sometimes you you can't control things you slip and you hurt your leg there's no easy way to get out and it's it's good to know that you know we've got got you available to uh to come save us if something goes wrong yeah excellent thank you thank you excellent. appreciate so, it man excellent and stop i think we'll skip the rest of the search and rescues we're hitting two oh hours yeah here. yeah it's all good until next time until next time you're gonna let the cats in now so they can play with the cats <laughs> right <laughs> you can they take the cats <laughs> yeah, now come right. back so again we'll catch well, up yeah. with the audience yeah, yeah that was great so i really enjoyed it thank you for having me on and uh looking forward to hearing the next podcast after this one i I'm glad I glad I heard about it. It's, it's interesting. Thanks, guys. Oh, good. Yeah, we sound like a podcast. <laughs> that was Jamie's observation based upon our logo. Yeah. So you <laughs> sounds like a podcast. Search and rescue. Yes. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. It's awesome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neely, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.